That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. I've been watching Oregon State and Washington State, particularly the women's basketball program at Oregon State and the men's basketball program at Washington State all season long. I've been watching them improve, get it together, find rhythm figure out the rotations, and we're watching two programs, one on the women's side and one on the men's side, find a whole bunch of momentum and a lot of positive trajectory as the conference tournament in Las Vegas is approaching. NCAA tournament looming beyond that. you got a Portland Regional on the women's side. We've talked a lot about Oregon State and interviewed Reagan Beers, Talina, Talia von Olhoffen, Coach Scott Ruick. We've talked with Kyle Smith, the men's coach at Washington State, several times on the show. And in the last week, we have watched Oregon State knock off UCLA in one of the biggest, baddest, best finishes that I've seen in college basketball in a long time. And a very emotional sort of finish for Oregon State against UCLA as Vaughn Olhoffen hits the game-winning three. And then last night, it was Kyle Smith's turn. Washington State headed to Arizona. 13-point underdog on the road playing against a top-five team. And Washington State got it done. Now, I can't be alone in thinking about Oregon State and Washington State exacting a little bit of revenge on the rest of the conference. And as much as we talked about it in football season, remember Jake Dickert, we belong, after he knocked off Wisconsin. You remember Jonathan Smith, I think we belong, after Oregon State got some momentum during the season. Remember, as as much as we talked about it during football season, I think the, the men's basketball program at Washington State and the women's program at Oregon State are flat getting it done. We're going to hear an interview that I did this morning from with Kyle Smith, the Washington State coach, coming up at 324. Uh, early, early this morning, I was texting with Kyle Smith. He said, call me now if you want to do an interview. I did. I uh, taped that interview. I think it'll be really cool for you to kind of hear the conversation we had. It wasn't really a formal radio interview. But, it, you know, I'm rolling on the interview and we're just talking about the season and I'm asking him questions about the game last night, the bus ride from Tucson to Tempe for Washington State. And in and around it, it really did get me thinking about the fact that Washington State men's basketball program is punching back against the rest of the Pac-12 conference in a way maybe the football team couldn't do during the season. And Oregon State's women's team, 
is showing that they belong at the top of women's college basketball. They're a top 10 team, and they have knocked off some big opponents, ranked opponents one after the other. Both of these programs, both of these teams are uh, playing lights out, and I want to play the highlight from last night is Jalen Wells uh, with uh, the Washington State team down by three, hits a three-pointer from the left side and gets fouled on the play. Subsequent free throw gives Washington State the lead. They go on to upset Arizona at Arizona. They sweep the season series from the Wildcats and, frankly, uh, now stand alone in first place in the Pac-12 men's standings. Here's how it sounded last night in Tucson. Off the screen, top of the key for the tie. Bracket, front iron, no good. Rebound, Yaki in the lane. Dishes it left wing for the tie. Wells, he hits it. And he got fouled. And he got fouled. <laughs> Four-point play in Tucson. Jalen Wells, 24.6 left. Can you believe it? With a smile on his face, Jalen Wells, a four-point try, and a free throw coming for the lead. Whoa. I couldn't help but think about the parallels between Washington State and Oregon State. And the ending of the Washington State-UCLA game uh, just last Friday night, as uh, you know, we have Talia von Olhoffen hitting the big three-point bucket and shots on the call here. Here she is. Here we go. Now it's Hansford inbounding. Talia for the win. She's got it. She's got it. She's got it. Oh, my goodness. Now, look, I know there's a lot of basketball to play in the Women's Conference Tournament. will be held March 6th through the 10th. The Men's Conference Tournament, March uh, 13th through the 16th in Vegas, uh, T-Mobile Arena for the men and uh, MGM Grand Event Center for the women. And I know there's a lot of basketball to play. I know that the regular season still has games, but I cannot be alone in thinking that in the back of the mind at Oregon State and Washington State with these two programs, there has to be some semblance of let's go out and prove something in this last, you know, for the first time. Since 1946-1947, you've got Washington State with eight straight wins, alone in first place. Scott Ruick's been there before with the Oregon State women, but they certainly are proving that they belong at the top of the conference. They've got a big game coming up with Stanford that you know will ultimately decide who's the one seed, who's the two seed in that, in that conference tournament. But Oregon State's going to be dangerous in the women's bracket. Washington State's going to be dangerous in the men's bracket. They're both NCAA tournament teams in my mind. I, I told Kyle Smith uh, last time he was on the show a couple weeks ago, I thought they were a Sweet 16 team. He almost hung up on me. You may remember that. Scott Ruick, same thing. I'm looking at Scott Ruick in Oregon State, and I'm going, gosh, uh, who's saying no for them being an Elite Eight team? I think they could play into the regional final right here in Portland. And so I, I just want you to think a little bit about that because the other thing, the dirty little secret that is going on right now as it pertains to those two schools and everybody can see it, and I'm not sure they can see it. It's one of these things where Oregon State, Washington State just might be too close to it. But the dirty little secret that I hope they become aware of is that more people than ever 
in history are talking about and thinking about and watching Oregon State and Washington State right now. They're talked about. They're top of mind for people across the country because everybody saw what happened to them with the Pac-12 conference implosion and everybody splintering in different directions. And, you know, part of the reason that Oregon State and Washington State get left behind is they're told by media companies, hey, your media markets and your brands are not big enough uh, for us to move you into the Big 12 or move you into the Big 10. Frankly, if you look at Eugene as a media market and you look at Corvallis as a media market, um, it's, you know, tomato, tomato, right? There's no difference in media market. The reason why the Big Ten Conference wanted Oregon, Fox wanted Oregon, is because of Oregon's brand. Oregon did a good job in the last 25 years of emphasizing and thinking about and investing in brand, brand, brand. Washington has an advantage over Washington State because of the proximity to Seattle, even though we all know lots of Washington State alums live in the Seattle area and that the TV ratings for Washington State and Seattle are strong. We all know that Washington gets associated with Seattle as the market and Washington State gets Pullman as a land-grant university. And it's, it's you know, the secret thing is, like, I've had more people outside of our region say to me, you know, what's going to happen to Oregon State and Washington State? How are they going to be next season in football? How are they going to be in basketball? How are they reacting to this? What are they going to do? You know, are they going to rebuild the conference? And so people on the in the East Coast and in the Central Time Zone are paying attention to Oregon State and Washington State in a way that they have never before noted. And in fact, I had a lot of friends that lived outside the market that had never been to the state of Oregon, probably didn't know the difference between Oregon and Oregon State and until you know they see uh, Oregon sort of establishing themselves in the last 20 years as a real brand. Like There was some confusion. Same kind of confusion that applies maybe a little bit to Portland and Portland State when you get outside the market. People get UP and PSU confused a little bit. There's some brand confusion. And so it's really important for all these schools to really emphasize and invest in their brands. Like We learned that in realignment. If you have a good brand and a good football team and a good media market, you matter, right? You register. But if you don't have the media market, what you absolutely have to have is brand. And so I really hope that Oregon State and Washington State, two schools, let's face it, that have not been great at building brand over the years. They might be bottom of bottom tier of the conference when it comes to, if you look at their performance, when it strictly brand building in the last 20 or 30 years, Oregon State and Washington State have not done a good job there. It's part of why they're in the mess they're in. Now, they have all the eyeballs. Everybody's talking about them. They're top of mind. People are wondering what's going to happen to them. So a men's program at Washington State that is playing the way it's playing and a women's program at Oregon State that's playing the way it's playing and other sports at those universities like baseball for Oregon State and soccer and volleyball for Washington State absolutely have to capitalize. And the football programs have to capitalize. And it's why I hope somebody in the athletic department and in in the university administration offices is tuned into the idea that right now not yesterday not two weeks from now right now there are just more people paying attention to oregon state and washington state than ever it's time to seize the platform and do some 
outside-the-box branding things. And I told somebody the other day, you know, nationally in college athletics, I said, I'm a little concerned about these two schools because they're just not inherently, naturally good at branding themselves. It's kind of a weak spot when it comes to Oregon State and Washington State. So I think it's really important, like, today, as I text Kyle Smith and say, hey, congrats on the win. Do you want to come on the show or do you want to do an interview? He says, I don't really have time to go on the show uh, for you. Uh, and he says, but I do. I can have a conversation with you. You know, I said, okay, I'll write a column about it. I'll give you a call. And I just decided, you know what? I'm going to record the interview because he needs the exposure. He deserves the exposure. The program deserves the exposure. But I just wish people at Washington State and Oregon State were more tuned into the idea that they need to be doing some things right now. And I don't care if it's a copycat of Oregon. Like, pay attention to what Oregon's doing on social media. Pay attention to what Oregon's doing with students who are create, helping create content and recruiting reels and videos. And, you know, after every football game, what happened on Tuesday or Wednesday the following week, Oregon's social media team had a dynamic video behind the scenes, mic'd up Dan Lanning. And, and it's really forward-thinking stuff that everybody should be doing, and in particular, Oregon State and Washington State should be doing. They have stuff to celebrate. Scott Ruick's women's basketball program, they should be thinking outside the box at Oregon State. How do we promote this thing? How do we promote this run? If they do make a deep run in March, are we going to be there to capitalize on it? Are we going to let America know what this team's about? Because it, you know, imagine you know, if you really can just extend this to, to you know, 10 years from now, 5 years from now, if Oregon State and Washington State are going to matter, if they're going to rejoin major college athletics, if this rebuild of the Pac-12 conference is going to make it. They're going to have to do some things now that are very forward-thinking, very smart, get attention, uh, become top of mind, build brand, and it can't be the same old little engine that could, doing more with less that they have traditionally sold at those two schools. They've got some really interesting things going on in basketball. They're going to have some things going on in the spring with baseball and some other sports. Then comes football season. But it's time for Oregon State, Washington State to start this right now. Because I kind of feel like the Beavers and the Cougars are on this, you know, vengeance tour. It's almost like watching a movie. It's like Bruce Willis or Jason Bourne, uh, you know, getting back at uh, the entity that, uh, that's, that shunned them. Uh, you're watching the women at Oregon State play lights out. You're watching the men at Washington State play lights out. There are not two better stories in the Pac-12 right now. Stanford might be atop the standings in the women's bracket, but nobody's hotter or more dangerous than Oregon State. Nobody wants to play them. And Kyle Smith's team at Washington State, nobody wants to play them. They have gone on the road and won and won and won, and they're posting quad one wins on the road against teams like Arizona and UCLA and you know beating the pants off Oregon, and defensively they're good. Like I, I, I'm, I don't want to say this to Kyle Smith in our conversation, I said Sweet 16, but they're looking like a team that could play really deep into the tournament with the right matchups. They're just big, and they've got a perimeter defender who's got a seven-foot wingspan, gave Arizona all kinds of problems. That's a team that is built to not only uh, be a problem in the postseason, but potentially contend. Sweet 16, Elite Eight, I don't think I'm speaking out of school. we got a great show for you today. We're going to give away some tickets you like free tickets on today's show? We're going to talk a little bit about the Blazers. We're going to talk a lot about basketball, college basketball. We're going to make sense of the college football playoff expansion models that are out there. What's good for you? 
What's good for the game? Is anybody thinking about that stuff? We touched on it yesterday. We'll dive deeper today. But I have a giveaway today. If you're somebody who is interested, uh, we're giving away a four-pack of tickets to the Portland Golf Show, March 1st through the 3rd at the Expo Center. We've got a four-pack of tickets to give away. Listeners who do not win over the air can enter to win online at 750thegame.com slash contests. But I'll take caller four right now at 503-417-7575. Caller four is getting a four-pack of tickets to the Portland Golf Show March 1st through the 3rd at the Expo Center. Leave it locked in right here. You're going to hear my conversation with Washington State coach Kyle Smith. I kind of did something cool with it. I left it unedited, so you get to hear the phone ringing. You get to hear him pick up the phone. Uh, you get to hear him just kind of talk ca- talk casually as we had a conversation this morning at about 8 a.m. about his team and a great night in Tucson. All right, all of that coming up. Kyle Smith, Washington State men's basketball coach. And tell me as you're listening to the interview, just be real, is it possible that Oregon State's women and Washington State's men are going to have not just the last laugh, but the final statement when it comes to the Pac-12 and the 10 departing schools. Keep that in mind as you listen to Kyle Smith in the interview that we had this morning. Leave it here. you got the BFT statewide. Off the screen, top of the key for the tie. Bracket, front iron, no good. Rebound, Yaki in the lane. Dishes it left wing for the tie. Wellsie hits it. And he got fouled. And he got fouled. <laughs> Four-point play in Tucson. Jalen Wells. 24.6 left. Can you believe it? With a smile on his face, Jalen Wells, a four-point try and a free throw coming for the lead. Whoa. Huge win in Tucson last night for Washington State. The Cougars are alone in first place in the Pac-12 standings. There's still some ball to play, but big win over Arizona. Kyle Smith, uh, I grabbed him this morning. I texted him. He said, uh, hey, I got time right now if you want to do an interview. And so I jumped into the studio and I recorded this interview. So you're hearing Kyle Smith at about 8 o'clock in the morning uh, after a big win over Arizona. Here's that interview. Hello? Hey, Coach, how you doing? Hey, what's going on? Congrats, man. That was awesome. It sure was. Thanks. Give me an idea. Uh, going in there, you know, you were a 10.5-point underdog at home against these guys, 13-point on the road, and how did you feel going in? You know, I actually felt I felt like we were going to compete pretty well. Now, getting a win there is a whole other story, but um, and I don't know why, but uh, this group's been pretty good, probably because we've won seven in a row. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I thought we could, we could uh, take care of the ball, would give us a chance, and I think both games we only turned it over nine times, so and and same same result. Just got gave us a chance end of the game, and and you got to get lucky too. Down the road, can you can you look that far down and go, hey, this is we won in that environment. Now, you know, we can do anything. Kind of kind of. Yeah, I, I mean, I think just it's another notch in our belt as far as confidence building, and it's funny how how. Uh, how precious that is and you know you don't know as a coach you go through these seasons and you have opportunities like I think for us the first one was Boise State um, where we got a win against we knew they were good it's a good team and I think that was the first time like okay we can beat good teams and and then the second one was when we got road win at USC so um, and that's just we've been building kind of 
kind of that way. And I think those give you a chance. Anytime you went on the road and um, we're fortunate, got UW in overtime. That was a good environment. That was, uh, and then this is probably one of the best environments in college basketball. Needless to say, we talked uh, at different points about you know this team and and how good and how how you guys have come out of last season well, but. At what point did you know you had something on your hands or the potential to have something on your hands this season? Um, I really think it was when we won at USC. Maybe um, even that, I I noticed Miles Rice was (laughs) pretty good. You know, I was like in our first scrimmage, because he'd been two years, and we knew he was very talented. um, And he didn't want to put a huge expectation on him. And, uh, you know, in our first couple scrimmages, he was our leading scorer. And so I was like, okay. And, you're, and the coaches, coaches are usually pretty conservative by nature and cautious. And then, you know, I think we played Mississippi State, and he was at 20. So I, when we finally um, let him kind of uh, take our team as far as running the point that he gives a pretty high ceiling because there's some other pieces that go along with that. But having a point guard that can put a lot of pressure on the defense and stuff like that is kind of – Gave us a, you know, like I said, a, a level that we can get to. You had some different rotations during this game that you know, people who've been following you all year will notice that, you know, you did a couple things different. Was there a strategy reason there? Is that feel? What, what were you thinking uh, as you're kind of working that out? Yeah, no, I, I think people always ask me style plan. I don't know what to say because I don't. <laughs> I, but I, I'm, I would say we're legitimately a counter punching team. I, I just think that's kind of. We're always going to take what the defense gives us a little bit, and then we have we've got some oddball sizes this year with um, our best players, our front court guys, and even playing Kamani in the back court at six 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 seven with seven foot wingspan, and we've been playing our, our uh, we've got a name for our defense now. We call it the Shamble, <laughs> and uh, it's Coach Shaw plus Scramble. So he he's, he basically has the keys to he he's the only one that really knows what's going on out there. Both teams, I mean, and, uh, our players, I think our players and Coach Shaw know what's going on, and then I'm pretty sure uh, the head coach is. You know, I'm just cheering them on. So uh, this just kind of made us a different look. I'm, I mean, I think we talked last time. We talked about the bandwagon. You, you know, you said there was room on the bandwagon. You know, I know you got a better, much better turnout that second home game. You're going to be going back home against the uh, L.A. schools coming up. I mean, I got a feeling you're going to get – they're going to have some parking problems. Like, I, I uh, it, that's a good problem, but, you know. Yeah, no, I, I hope they don't charge for parking. I think I've heard enough people in town say they don't they watch them on TV because we charge for parking, so I'm not <laughs> making the request now. Yeah. Let's, let's waive the parking fees. Get them in the building. So, no, I think it will be great. I saw someone took a, a video of the Valhalla, the bar, local bar in town, and it was pretty nuts, and we – uh, when Jalen hit that shot, it was pretty awesome to watch that uh, people are pretty enthused. And I, I agree. I think we'll have some good turnouts when we get back home. You see some teams that when they face crisis or they face some adversity, they'll splinter. This one has pulled together after last season and losing guys. Why do you think that is? Our character. I mean, like I said, it's I got to double down on my why, why I do this. And, and we pitch it to parents. We pitch it to the kids. It's corny. But we say, hey, this is a character development program. We display our character through basketball. So we start from there, and then we try to work through it. And um, so we try to keep the main thing the main thing. And um, that's what makes me proud of the guys I've coached in the past to see how well they do in life. Um, So I think 
you know, what I say, if you want guys that want to be here. And, and I still have good relationships with some of the guys that left. And then we didn't leave on bad terms. But it's like, hey, you don't want to be here? Fine. We'll be okay. And, uh, and we have been. So it just kind of got better. And I, I think the only two pieces that have been here for five years are, are me and Shaw. So the shamble. <laughs> I love that. that yeah. right, give me an idea. I sent you a text after the game because I just thought, wow, what a what a crazy night. And I know your phone must have looked nuts. Like, take mm-hmm. me through kind of after the game, after, you know, we all get to stop watching on TV, what your night was like last night. Uh, I said we're a bunch of nerds. Um, it was it was got on the bus and drove to Tempe, and they weren't too rowdy. And I think everyone just kind of, you know, responded to their texts. And, um, you know, we, we know we've got ourselves an opportunity and, um, we've got a top, I mean, ASU almost made the biggest comeback. We're, we moved on to the next. I know we're not quite Belichick and we do it with a smile. We're not, we're not grumpy <laughs> about it, but we're like, hey, we, we got to celebrate it, enjoy it. And they were great in the locker room. And it was great to see some other guys like Miles now play his best game. Um, and Ruben and Kamani came off the bench and were awesome. So it's just, it's a good group and it's a team's team and, and we're just trying to stay in that stay in that zone, and uh, know that six o'clock tomorrow we got to tip it off. And like since ASU's talented and quick, and gonna gonna cause problems for us. I look back at and I was looking at your losses, and I saw the Cal game, I saw Santa Clara, um, and you know the, it, you look at where you are now, and this looks like something confidence-wise, or rhythm, or fluid, or maybe you guys just figured figured out how to play well together that when you saw Cal the second time it was a much different game like how yeah. do you, how do we explain that oh just all of the above the things you hit on I think us uh getting more kind of like I said like is you we got to put it put together pretty quickly then you got to go through some stuff and you know, said so you got a guys like Miles that's getting better Isaac Jones even though he's older and that stuff he hadn't played at this level and I think once he and he struggled his first two league games. That first, shoot, May first four. <laughs> I think it's first four. He really struggled, and then he broke out of it. And he's kind of like it was like, oh, I, I can, you know, anyone that watches him plays, like, oh, that guy's a good talent, but inside he's not sure. So I think that established those, those things that, and just kind of get better. And sometimes with, like I said, you you get a win and how you handle success. You can handle one of two ways. You can soften up, or you can you know, kind of get hungrier for it. And this group, for whatever reason, seems to really believe in themselves. I told you last time I thought you were Sweet 16. We might have to reevaluate that. Uh, guys... Whoa, 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 pump the brakes. That was getting <laughs> toxic. And the Cal, you know what? Cal outplayed us in Berkeley, and we still had a chance to win. That's why I, I wasn't that depressed after that game. Yeah. Because I was going to say we were, we were up seven with two minutes, and it went quick. They hit a and one, and then they hit a three, went to one, and they had out-rebounded us. They had, won the turnover battle they just they were that was their first time playing against madsen's team and, and uh i'm mean, no surprise they played really hard <laughs> they play like he, they play like he played. You know, it was like they were playing hard i was like oh and I, I and um but i felt like okay how are we going to respond to that we had color on utah at home and we played really well we yeah. just like okay we, we we feel like and that's a great sign because we you know kind of you could look at it gave away and say you know what we didn't totally earn that one and if we would have stole it, I think it would have bit us in the butt, you know, the next game. You never know. But they've kind of – they've been very coachable. You get back. You get into Tempe. You you go to sleep. You sleep well. You watch film. What do you, you know, you stay up because you can't sleep. What happens? Well, 
my wife got me my, these beats. I didn't even know these things, these noise-canceling things. Yeah. And I was cranked up some Mount Joy on the bus, and I was just, I was, I was vibing. I was, I was really pumped. Listen to a little Mount Joy, and I'm going to watch a little film now. But I, and I slept about four or five hours, so that, that's what I did. You, you know what? You were talking. You, one time we were talking, and you talked about the kids ordering their sandwiches online, how the way they want them, or on their phones. Now you're listening with uh, some Beats headphones. Is it headphones you got, or the ear pods, or what do you got? No, I got the headphones, man. Noise canceling, man. I listen to my podcast. I'm, I, hey, I'm trying to stay focused. It's hard with all you media guys watching. <laughs> I know. Of us. I know. So, uh, but no, I was. Like I said, it's it's been an even. This crew's pretty even keeled. Um, and that's, we've told him not too high, not too low, but I think that's kind of centered. Andre, Isaac, Oscar, um, Jalen, those guys are really, their emotional maturity is, is really high and their work ethic's high. And, they're, and that, that, that's, that makes a really fun group to coach. Uh, Kelly Graves yesterday, we were talking to him, and uh, I did not know he coached your wife. And, mm-hmm. and you know, he's really excited for you guys. You've got to be hearing from a ton of people after a game like oh, that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They come out of the woodworks. The bandwagon, it's never full for us. We're, we'll welcome, like I said, welcome all <laughs> they're in. So, yeah, now Kelly's been a big supporter, and he always goes out of his way to try to track me down when we play in Eugene. And, and, uh, and my wife loves him. He's a heck of a recruiter. She said I, I, she wouldn't have done anything to play for that guy. So he's a good man. All right. Kyle Smith, thank you, man. Congrats to you, and uh, we'll catch up with you. I can't wait to see you in the tournament, and I'll see you in Vegas. All right. Thanks, John. Appreciate okay. Take it. care, man. Bye-bye. What a story. Washington State men's basketball. Remember, Kyle Smith, he lost players to the NBA. He lost two key players in the portal, including one, T.J. Bamba, uh, who goes to Villanova. And he loses another, Dennis Rodman's kid, DJ, goes to USC. He replaces those losses with a community college player, a Big Sky Conference player, and a player who was at Sonoma State playing Division II basketball. Takes that team into Tucson and ends up sweeping Arizona this season. Big win for Washington State. You've been all over it. I think this is the third time this season we've had Kyle Smith on the show. We could see this coming. i got to say this, too. Am I the only one who is looking at the Oregon State women's basketball program and their success, number nine in the country, lightning in a bottle, game-winning shots, playing with purpose, and watching Kyle Smith's team at Washington State, same thing, eight in a row, big win over Arizona, and thinking, gosh, these two programs, these two Pac-2 schools are sure playing uh, like they're seeking revenge. Am I the only one that's thinking that? I can't be. Leave it here. You got the BFT statewide on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. I love to being able to share that interview with you. Kyle Smith, Washington State coach. That was taped at about 8 a.m. this morning. I'm sure he's had a busy day. So much, uh, so much of the success of Washington State has been fun to watch. Oregon State as well. See what they do in the conference tournaments. We'll be broadcasting live. This show will be from Las Vegas during the women's tournament and the men's tournament. So uh, the Thursday and Friday of both of those tournaments will be live from Las Vegas. We'll have guests that are part of the tournament. Uh, we'll get coaches. We'll get players. We'll bring you to Vegas. Um, you know, I, Basically, I'm taking you to Vegas, and it's not costing you anything. It's not going to cost you, uh, you know, you know what happens walking through the casino. 
Uh, we're not going to do that to you, but you're going to get the flavor of Vegas on this show uh, as we go there and take this show on remote as we do. Um, this is not some uh, radio show. It's not two guys sitting on a bucket in a garage. Um, I, you know, If that works for you, you want to listen to that, you can go into your own garage and get a bucket. But uh, we are going to be one guy sitting in Vegas inside the arena where the action is, and you're going to be hearing from uh, personalities like Kyle Smith, the Washington State coach, and Scott Ruick, the Oregon State women's coach, and we'll go to where the action is and bring you right there with us. Um, we're going to give you our big splash coming up. Before I do, Judah Newby, you're in the seat today. Stephen Vaughn off today. I think it's his birthday this weekend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, birthday for Stephen, uh, I think, tomorrow. So he's taking the day to celebrate, which uh, I'm all for. Probably going to Chuck E. Cheese. I know, yeah. you know, do something like that. But or, hey, what did you, you know, the yeah. spare mount or something? Get a little, uh, <laughs> get a little. Yeah, that'd be more his speed. Yeah, action that'd on the games this weekend. Chinook wins, something like that. Yeah. Um, give me an idea. Um, Kyle Smith, the Washington State men's program. Scott Ruick, the Oregon State women's program. I don't know why it just keeps popping into my mind. I'm kind of looking at these two teams, going, you know, they know this is the last time they're playing a Pac-12 schedule. I just wonder, and I want to hear that from a player. But I wonder how much of that is on their minds as they are uh, soaring this season. Yeah, it's got to be on the coaches' minds, I would think. And, you know, for, for Ruick and, and the Beavers, I'm really fascinated because they've kind of rebuilt themselves, refound themselves after the early success of, you know, 15, 16, and 17. I kind of doubted that they would ever get back to the point uh, that they were during that time. And, and Scott Ruick has found a way. Uh, for Washington State, Golly, I don't think they've won the conference since 1941. I mean, that's incredible. That that's a long, long time of uh, of of not being relevant at the top of the conference. And they could win the dang thing in the last year of the Pac-12. That's amazing to me. That you couldn't ask for a better storyline. And I'm not a you know a coog at all. But the fa- my favorite part about all this is seeing the Cougar Nation kind of assemble and come together and just soak it up and love it. You know, there's so many Coug fans. In the Portland area, so many listeners who are Coug fans and people we work with, John, you and me, that they got a extra, you know, a hop in their step, walking around the office today, and it's just great to see Jim Moore on on social yeah. media just soaking it up. And I'm like, man, that brings a smile to my face because you know that fan base deserves it just as much as you know some of the players and coaches do, and they get to have this moment. It's not over yet, you know. They're absolutely dangerous going into postseason play. If a team like San Diego State can catch fire and go to the national championship you know FAU can go to the final four why can't the Cougs do something special in March I'm all for it they're the second biggest team in the country as far as size and Kyle Smith kind of alluded to the fact that they've got some oddities um, at certain positions and one of them is that you know they have a guard that they bring off the bench um, you know Kamani Husano who is six seven and he has a seven foot wingspan He's not a starter, but he played significant minutes. He came off the bench, and he really gave Arizona problems. Arizona was having problems shooting from the three-point range, in part because anytime you know Kimani was around, um, you got to shoot over a seven-footer essentially. And so um, you got him out there on the perimeter. They have really good; uh, they're getting really good play from, of course, you know, a player like uh, Jalen Wells, who nobody saw coming. Uh, who is you know might be the best player in the conference this season? If not, he's right there. It's one B. Um, but when you look at the standings on the men's side, it's really interesting. Washington State is in first place today, twelve and four in conference play. 
Oregon State's in last place on the men's bracket. All right, three and thirteen. There's your first and last on the men's bracket. On the women's side, Oregon State ten and four trails only Stanford in the in the standings. And by the way, the Oregon women are in last place. And so I just find it interesting. Like it's feast or famine right now for these programs. Like, and and you know we had Graves on Kelly Graves on yesterday, and I thought he, I thought it was a really important interview to have, especially at this point of the season, because he's got to fix it at Oregon. But he's going off to play in the Big Ten next year. And Scott Ruick, you know, I think there's some urgency for these Pac-2 teams, Oregon State, Washington State, because next year they're going to be WCC-type. Uh, they'll be in the standings in the WCC. They'll be playing in the WCC tournament. They're not going to be playing these Pac-12 teams. It's kind of like there's a little bit of urgency. And I'm just wondering if they're flipping the teams that have a shot here are flipping the switch going, this is it. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because Graves mentioned how tough the Pac-12 schedule is. He's like, oh, so rigorous. You know, we just played seven top 20 teams in a row. Like, that never happens. And it's almost like, well, the Big Ten might be easier from a competition standpoint for the schedule. So it might be a reprieve going to the Big Ten. And then as far as, you know, the Beaver women, uh, we'll see what their schedule ends up looking like. And I'm sure, yeah, it's going to be a lot different than the gauntlet that they faced in the Pac-12. And that's just the other thing. I mean, you know, the Pac-12 is just so good at so many of these sports. It's a shame that this conference, you know, is is no more. But it sets up for a pretty epic finish in Vegas with these two tournaments. And you have, I of course, I, I heard from Washington State fans today. I wrote about Kyle Smith. I wrote about Washington State at johnconzano.com. And I, I did get some Washington State fans in the comment section who are saying, you know, this is great, but... Are we going to lose Kyle Smith at the end of the year? Just like Oregon State lost Jonathan Smith at the end of the football season. And, you know, when you're relegated more or less to playing, you know, WCC opponents next year, um, are, on the men's side in particular, are you, you know, are you going to see a flight, a uh, potential flight by Kyle Smith? And I, I think the answer is yes. I think he's going to get offers. I think he's going to be the national coach of the year if he wins this conference in the regular season. He's gonna get. Um, he's gonna have a choice of two or three jobs, and I think Washington State's gonna probably lose him. But I think that comes with success, right? One of the things that comes with success when you have good players, good coaches, is you're gonna you're gonna get poached. You know, the 49ers lose defensive coordinators uh, after appearing in the Super Bowl in the NFC Championship game. Their coordinators get hired away. Um, in uh, and teams that uh, teams like Oregon State are gonna lose players in the portal at the end of the football season. And Jonathan Smith's going to go to Michigan State. And people are not going to be happy about that. But I also think you have to kind of step back. If you're a fan of Washington State, you really have to enjoy this. Enjoy it like, you know, there's nothing coming after it. Because, uh, you know, he may leave just like Tony Bennett left. And I won't blame him for that if he takes a different job in a different conference because he's been there a while. He's kind of done this thing. If he wins the conference championship, he's a hell of a coach. Somebody's going to call him. Judah, do you blame him if he he makes a leap after this season? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, I would be <laughs> it would be one of the most stunning uh decisions if he decided to stay. I mean, this has, you know, he he should leave. Honestly, he should leave. There's no reason for him to stay from just an individual standpoint. Uh, I think everybody recognizes that. That's okay. That should be okay. There should be really no even Coug fans shouldn't say, "Oh man, I can't believe he's going to leave." Like 
let's be real about the situation. When you're real about the situation, you can appreciate the moment even more. Let's appreciate what is going on here with the knowledge that the coach is leaving. And guess what? It's all okay because that's the reality of the situation. You don't have to strain and stress yourself out about, is my coach going to leave? Is he going to stay? The reality is he's going to get a better job that pays him more money, and it's better for him and his family. Good for you, Kyle Smith. You earned it. You deserved it, especially with this roster that you have right now after all the turnover from last year. I mean, it's a storybook finish. Let's enjoy the storybook part of it and not worry too much about the fact that he's going to leave because he should. It's hard, though. It's so hard because I think Oregon State fans are nodding their heads going, okay, yeah, yeah, it's great to say that, but it doesn't feel good to get left, you know. And yeah. <laughs> but you know but these Jonathan, two guys are different. These yeah, two situations yeah. are much different, you know, with Smith and with the two Smiths, right, Jonathan and and Kyle. Like, there's some comparisons there, but the manner in which Jonathan left would be much different than the manner in which Kyle leaves. Now, I have I did talk to Kyle Smith frequently in the off season. I talked to him in the summer. I talked to him as the season approached. I had no idea they were going to be this good. I thought they, you know, that we had we had talked with a bunch of people who had picked them tenth, eleventh, and twelfth in the conference, and you're that you, they get picked there because they lost, you know, they lose T.J. Bamba to Villanova, they lose D.J. Rodman to USC, they lose, um, you know, their center goes to the NBA draft and gets picked 39th. He's picked in the second round. He had eligibility left. He could have stayed. He's like, I'm out. So he's starting over and. You know, you don't really get a chance to see his guard, his uh, you know, his combo guard, because the kid is coming off of you know beating cancer. He had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and he's coming back from cancer, and so nobody was thinking anything. Miles Rice would be what he is, but but Kyle Smith saw him. You know, he watched him practice, he watched him play in the summer, and he thought, gosh, you know, that's like picking up a player in the portal. You're getting Miles Rice healthy, and he looks good. And and then he goes and he grabs the kid from Idaho. He grabs a Division two player from Sonoma State. And so all of a sudden, uh, you know, you look up and you go, gosh, like um, Jalen Wells is a really good player. Like, you know, and, and I talked to the head coach at Division two Chico State about Jalen Wells. And he said, gosh, that was a kid that we recruited and we didn't think he was strong enough to play Division II basketball, he went to Sonoma State instead of Chico State, Division II, Sonoma State, Sonoma known for wine country, not for basketball. And then Jalen Wells ends up um, at Washington State. Now he, he had time to develop. He got stronger. He's a really good player. Like, he's, you know, he gave Arizona all kinds of problems. It's got some Jordan Pope vibes to it, right? With uh, with guys getting overlooked initially, but then finding a home at an Oregon State or for uh, Jalen Wells at Washington State and then thriving in the midst of it. And you need good, strong coaching to get the most out of these guys. And to your brand point that you brought up in the opening segment as well, like, got to capitalize on, on this winning. For Wazoo and Oregon State, I feel like their best brand reinforcement is winning. Because they don't have exactly the resources or the deep pockets to support all these, you know, social media. At least that's the way maybe my perceptions are wrong. And I see the Beavers are trying to do more social media stuff yeah. and pushing stuff out. And they're doing a, a good job of that. But it's not going to be at the level that Oregon does it. At least not to that level of sophistication or, or maturity yet. Their best brand reinforcement is winning. There was nothing better for Oregon State Athletics 
at the time, then back-to-back baseball national championships, then even Wayne Tinkle getting them to, you know, the four-minute timeout in the Elite Eight, tied with Houston, four minutes away from going to a Final Four. Winning is the best brand reinforcement for these programs, but to your point, they got to make sure they capitalize on this, you know, momentum that they have. That is a great point. Football drives the bus, but I think they need to do more. They need to be thinking about the eyeballs. More people than ever are talking about Oregon State and Washington State right now. It's time to capitalize, but I do worry. These are two programs, two schools historically that have not branded themselves well. So I hope they go outside for some ideas. That brings us to our big splash. It comes out of the NFL, speaking of outside. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. Brought to you by Killer Burger, home of the peanut butter pickle bacon burger and voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about. Well, the NFL's salary cap is directly tied to the league's revenue. So when there's growth in revenue, salary cap goes up. The NFL announced today that the salary cap for the 2024 season will be a record $255 million per team. That's a 13.6% increase over last year's cap. And it's a sign that the league is entering a new phase of exploding revenue. Um, Look, uh, teams like the 49ers, the Green Bay Packers, and the Seattle Seahawks were all projected to be over the cap. But because the number came in so high, they're now going to be under the cap. Massive jump? Why? Well, part of it is the league paid back all of the player benefits that were deferred in 2020 as part of the agreement between the players and the league to keep their league running during the pandemic. But uh, good news for NFL free agents. Uh, the NFL saw an, a cap increase every year of 10 to $12 million. This next year, it's going up $30 million. So keep an eye on those free agent contracts. And a lot of smiles coming out of Seattle and San Francisco and Green Bay where they thought they were going to have to make some really tough decisions. All right, hour number two is coming up. Punch and audio still ahead. We're going to check in with the beat reporter for the Sacramento Kings later in the program. Anna and I went to see Bill Burr, the comedian, last night at Moda Center. He was good. He's really good. I get a little unnerved, though, because the trend now with a lot of these comedians is they they want you, as you go into the arena, they take your phone away from you. Or they make you put it in a pouch. And it's magnetically sealed, so you can't get it back out. But the tickets are all electronic, so it's a little disconcerting to me because they basically just look at your phone, have you scan your ticket, and then they hand you like a little post-it note where they write your seat position on it. And then I hold that post-it note like it's the most important thing that I've ever held in my hands because i got to remember where I'm sitting. And then they seal your phone up in this bag, and it's closed by a magnet, and you can't get it open until you get out of the arena. And the prevailing thought is, A, the comedians do not want you filming their act. B, they don't want you filming their act because you could take something out of context and get them canceled or give away their material. And it's also pretty distracting to have a bunch of people filming the comedy act or the musical act. I think you shouldn't have you shouldn't be able to have your phone out for anything, but it is a little alarming to not have your seat and you got this little piece of paper with your section and your row and your seat number written on it 
And uh, so Anna and I went into the uh, arena, and uh, we met some BFT listeners who were like, hey, listen to the show. Awesome. Love uh, hearing from uh, from listeners. In fact, she had her red jacket on, her Portland gear jacket. One guy said, hey, I remember you talked about that jacket. And for people who don't know, uh, I was going to get Anna the Portland gear jacket for Valentine's Day because she had expressed that she really wanted it. And Portland Gear only had like a very limited number of the jackets they were going to sell. And I thought, okay, I'm going to get online on that Friday morning. I'm going to be the first person to buy that jacket, just like I was buying Taylor Swift tickets or something. Um, Good on Portland Gear for creating that demand. But I uh, ended up not getting the jacket. They sold out. And then subsequently, here comes the jacket. It shows up at the house because Anna had got online and bought it her damn self. And so the guy was like, you bought your jacket yourself. And uh, so I love when people listen to the show. It's always weird to me and also like very it's heartwarming to me to be like, all right, you're out there. And uh, but it was interesting. I ran into a guy because I kind of stopped and we hung out on the concourse for a little bit, ran into a guy who did not write down his ticket number. So the 300 level was kind of curtained off for Bill Burr, but. You know, I got to think there's about ten or 12,000 seats inside Moda Center that are, you know, outside of the 300 level. And so this dude and his wife were like, they sealed up my phone and I don't have my seat number. And I'm like, do you remember anything about it? And he's like, no. And I go, well, you can go and there's a place where you can unlock your thing. And he was like, I'm going to have to. And I was like, this is very stressful. This whole thing is very stressful. And uh, I don't think Moda does the best job of getting you in and out of the building. And it has nothing to do with security. I think it has to do with staffing. They don't do a great job of getting you in and out. I've been to a few events, and I know Blazer games are like that as well, where there's just kind of a it's kind of a process getting you in or out. Like I go to a lot of stadiums and a lot of arenas. Some are better than others at getting people in, getting them through security. And I think security is a necessary uh, part of the game in today's world, and getting them to where they need to be in a timely fashion, because uh, it does become a bit of an ordeal. But Bill Burr was very good. He was very good in doing what Bill Burr does. All right, we're going to play Punch and Audio. we got the best sound from all around. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, let's start with the Portland Trailblazers as they uh, pick up action or prepare to pick up action for the post-All-Star break. Anthony Simons, one of the team leaders, guard on the team, talking about what the rest of the season is about for the Blazers. Blazers hosting Denver tonight. 7 o'clock, Anthony Simons, punch it. Um, just to finish the season strong. Um, just continue. We've been been preaching all season and um, just end the season on a good note and, you know, a good feeling, you know, coming into next season. And so, um, you know, the message has always been the same. Um, we just want to end it on a good note and continue to, you know, continue this journey and, you know, becoming a great team. Look, I like Anthony Simons. I like his game. But I don't like the message there. End it on a good note. This is a team that lost six in a row going into the All-Star break. They're 15-39. and 39. They haven't been good on the road. They're 6-22. and 22. Inside of their own division, they're 1-11. Hasn't been a good season. So what's a, what's a good note? 
I almost think a good note would be to have the worst record in the NBA and the chance at the best pick. But I was typically for Manfredi Simons, like what it is that he wants to get out of the end of this season. And, and his answer kind of told me that they have not talked about this as a team. Ended on a good note. I would like to see some goal setting. Are they trying to win or are they trying to tank? I think we'll figure that out by how, you know, who plays and how often. But Anthony Simons of the Blazers hoping to end on a good note. Stephen A. Smith says the pressure in Milwaukee is on two people. Doc Rivers and Damian Lillard. Not Giannis. Stephen A., what do you mean? Punch it. If you're Doc Rivers, I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. I believe maybe not this year because there's a lot that's happened. But if Doc Rivers doesn't deliver a championship to Milwaukee, I don't think he's going to get another head coaching job. I he's think not. this is his last stop. He's I think this is his last stop. So I because agree. this is his last stop, this is his last stop, and Damian Lillard has never been in an NBA Finals, I think there's more pressure on them than a league MVP, a former league MVP who's averaging about damn near 30, who's arguably the most dominant force in the game. I, I don't think there's more pressure on Giannis than it is those two. I would agree with that, and, but I think it's simpler. I think Stephen A is using a lot of words to say something very simple. Giannis is a freak. Giannis is also a guy who has an NBA championship and a finals MVP and two league MVPs. He's done it. And Damian Lillard is the addition. And Doc Rivers is the new, new coach. And so, yeah, if they don't win, it's going to be on the new guys, not on the guy who's already been there, done that. And I think it's that simple. Yesterday, as we were kicking this around, I, I just started thinking more and more that maybe this is just a stepping stone for Damian Lillard to somewhere else. I think he's incredibly fortunate to be in the Eastern Conference. I think he enjoyed... A higher profile in the All-Star game because he was on the East, not the West. I think he doesn't have to contend with, is he going to be a starter? Is he one of the best four or five players? He's in the weaker of the two leagues and benefiting from it. But I I think this might be just uh, a one or two year thing for Damian Lillard than on to something else if it doesn't work out. And I don't think it's going to work out. I think... You know, as I look at the Eastern Conference, we kind of did this yesterday, but Boston, potentially Philadelphia, both, I think, better than Milwaukee. And, uh, you know, the Miami Heat, who uh, surged at the end of last season, are always dangerous. But I just don't think it's Milwaukee's year. It doesn't have that feel to me. It's pivoting to the NFL. Daniel Jeremiah was asked, should the Seahawks consider J.J. McCarthy or Bo Nix at number 16 overall? Would that solve the quarterback question in Seattle? Or is it Geno Smith? Still, punch it. With where I have him right now, that would be a, it would definitely be a conversation. It would be a discussion. But I always, you know, I would get it and say, am I confident this is a clear upgrade over what you've had in Geno the last couple of years? And I would say at this point in time, I don't, I couldn't answer that very confident. This is an upgrade over what we already have. And I think Geno's, you know, quote unquote window is still open or you still have some good football you can get out of him. I think I would probably go to the line of scrimmage. Geno Smith had his contract restructured. Wasn't a surprise. 
just yesterday. They the Seahawks converted his bonus into a signing bonus. It was a roster bonus that became a signing bonus, and it created about four point eight million in cap space for the team. I don't know, Judah. You're the Seahawks fan. Do you have confidence in Geno Smith? Is it is it a thumbs up or a thumbs down for you? Oh, it's thumbs up for me. I'm probably more on the optimistic side of Geno Smith than, uh, than the general public. Just watching him week in, week out. He makes plays and makes throws that I don't think uh, people appreciate. Stands in the pocket. He's strong and is willing to make aggressive throws down the field, which will always kind of uh, get my heart. So I'm a fan of that. And I don't know about McCarthy. I, I've got a couple of you know big Michigan fans in my life, and they're trying to convince me on McCarthy, and I'm just like, man, it's maybe I'm not seeing it, but the dude is like vanilla all the way around. Like, I agree. You know, I just don't get it, and he's got this affable personality, but that doesn't make him a winner. Like, I don't understand the the buzz on him. Nick's I'm more high on as well, but I I really like what you're saying with Nick's with with the Sean Payton Broncos stuff, and I'm seeing more and more of that. I'm rooting for that fit for for Bo more than anything. But in Seattle, I like Geno certainly for one more year, maybe for two. And uh, if they were able to groom another young quarterback behind him, a la the Jordan Love Rodgers plan or the Rodgers Favre plan, I'm so envious of that track. No one has any patience anymore. But if the Seahawks were able to do a little bit of that, I'd be a fan of that. I have a question for you because Ryan Grubb will be the Seahawks coordinator. And I'm hearing more and more talk about Michael Penix. Maybe uh, the, the, the mock drafts have him slipping a little. If you're the Seahawks and Ryan Grubb's in that room going, I get me Michael Penix, get me Michael Penix, do you... Do you vote in favor of reunion if you can get Penix at the right spot in the draft? Oh, that's a great question. Um, there's a couple things there. One, I don't think... You know, I'm going to go on a limb, and I'm going to, I'm going to say Ryan Grubb wouldn't stand on the table for Michael Penix. Not as a player, but I think he's a realist. I've, I've heard a lot of interviews with him. Uh, he seems to really be grounded and have a good grasp on what his offense is. It's not just a pass-happy attack offense. I mean, Washington did that because they had the personnel for it. Uh, Seattle and in the NFL, you're not going to have that outside athlete advantage over other schools in college football that you did with the Huskies. You're not going to have that same equivalent in the NFL. And Ryan Grubb's an offensive line guy. Like, that's that's his bread and butter, his offensive line run game. And it just shows you how adaptable he is because of how good their passing offense was last year. And then secondarily, the coaching staff isn't even going to the combine in in uh, in or next week. You know, they're they are not going to be involved in the draft process, which I found interesting. John Schneider said yesterday up on uh, Seattle Sports that the coaching staff's not really involved in the draft process right now. Their number one job is just all install, 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 install between now and late March when players start rolling in for rookie minicamp and OTAs, etc. This is John Schneider's show. Pete Carroll's gone. This is John Schneider's show. He finally has final say over draft, roster, everything, and he's going to be the one making these calls. I'm sure Grubb will have input, but I frankly don't see Penix in Seattle. I could be wrong, but I don't see it. There's some talk about Penix to Atlanta at 8. If he doesn't go there, I think he could fall. Uh, Roma Dunze has been uh, talked about as being maybe a top 10 pick as well. There's a chance there that, you know, that some people have him going to the Bears at 9. Um, uh, in other places, I think it's, I don't know, maybe maybe you take Caleb Williams and Rome Adunze if you are the Bears, 
and you get the best QB and the best receiver in the Pac-12. Are you, uh, you're Caleb, number one to Chicago right now? If you I, had to uh, make a pick on it, if I am, if I have the number one pick, I would first try to move back, pick up extra assets, stay somewhere in the top five or top seven. I think we've seen teams have success doing that, picking up extra assets, getting another player, getting another draft pick, because I think there is a risk at one with anybody. But I also don't love taking QBs number one overall, and I, you know, I just think it's, I haven't seen a ton of success from guys that are picked in that position who go on to be like to follow through. I think it's it's usually a bad franchise who's making a desperation pick and throwing a guy into a bad situation and so I you know if I'm the Bears I probably first look to move back get better on the offensive and defensive line and still try to pick in the top 10 but they may not find much of a market for that and you know and if you're stuck there at 1 how do you pass on Caleb Williams how do you do that and and that's the pick they got from Carolina in the trade already so they also have a natural top 10 pick to go with it, I think yep. they, uh, they've got four or five in the draft as well. So they're in yeah. a, they're in a pretty juicy spot. So maybe because they're picking it, I think they pick at one and nine again. You know, so maybe they they can afford to go Caleb Williams, and then with that second pick, I don't know that I would go Roma Dunze. I wouldn't go offense offense there if I'm them. But um, we'll see what happens. A guy that I'm really interested in is is Brock Bowers at Georgia. Yeah. Because the league, we have seen the league with Travis Kelsey, George Kittle, Gronk, others. We've seen what a tight end can do for an offense. But people are projecting him to go in the second half of the first round. Would the Seahawks take him? <laughs> I mean, I love him. I love him, you know, for sure. I mean, he could do so much uh, blocking, you know, in the receiving game, yards after catch. He just brings an attitude for sure. I think that would be a lot of fun. I am interested in the fact that, you know, I know I say the coaches won't have a lot of input in the draft, but your first, you know, your head coach is a defensive guy, and Mike McDonald, do you want to give him another blue-chip defensive player, maybe a D lineman in that middle of the first round? Because, you know, looking at that Ravens defense from a personnel standpoint, especially up front, Seahawks don't have that. So could they start to, you know, kind of bolster the interior of their D-line with a with a pick there at 16? I'm interested in that. I know your Niners are at 31, John, and I'm seeing a lot of Troy Franklin in that area, the Duck mm. receiver. Baltimore, 30. Niners, 31. Even Chiefs, 32. Wouldn't be surprised if I'm going around there. The Niners need to figure out what they're doing with Brandon Ayuk. And, you know, are they committing to him? Are, is he gone? Um, are they going to trade him? Are they going to let him go? Uh, there's been a lot of speculation about him uh, and his future with the 49ers. But the fact that the cap went up and came in at a $30 million more may afford the Niners a different decision there because there was some talk about could they draft a young receiver and do without Ayuk. I think the 49ers' biggest weakness is the right side of their offensive line. Their right guard, their right tackle, they need help there, and I would be really surprised if they didn't pick an offensive lineman with their, you know, one of their first two picks in the draft. Steve Belichick is the new D coordinator at Washington University of Washington. Son of Ben Bill Belichick, talking about, you know, what he's bringing from New England and what he's leaving behind. Punch it. Yeah, I would say I'm different than those guys. I grew up. You know, with my dad, and I've always kind of we talked about this last time. You know, being that being the son, you're always kind of in the ghetto, and uh, probably 
when he left Cleveland, I was like eight. And so ever since then, I've tried to not beat him. Yeah, um, exactly. I want to just be, yeah, I want to be Steve. I don't want to be Bill. Um, people say that we sound the same. So, you know, that's one thing I can't really change. But uh, <laughs> other than that, I don't, I want to do, especially with success and Zed, I want to do that, but I don't want to, I'll take a couple things, but I want to be myself. Yeah. Um, I want to be real with the guys and when the relationships I build and not try and be somebody I'm not. Interesting fit. Jed Fish, the head coach at Washington, coached on Bill Belichick's staff. He knows Steve. He's brought him in to be his coordinator. Jed Fish has talked about having Bill Belichick around. He will not be coaching in the NFL for the first time since 1974. Dad is said to be headed to television, maybe as a regular on TV on one of the panel shows. Maybe he's helping out critiquing Washington it's a little bit unsure but I think Jed Fish has talked about you know having a place for Bill Belichick as an analyst or a helper it would be a great mind to have around I find it interesting that nobody wants Belichick as their head coach or uh, in major college football or pro football there is a whiff and, and I mean like small small whiff of Belichick to the Niners for defensive coordinator bring it I would do it <laughs> And then I do it. Isn't this crazy? This is crazy to me. I'm still getting used to Steve Belichick at UW. We're going to see a Belichick game plan against the Ducks next year. Like I can't, I can't wait to see what a Steve Belichick defense does against a Will Stein offense in the Big Ten. Like that's such a great storyline. And Pete Carroll is already reportedly around the building at UW. Could you imagine if Bill Belichick also came in to like I know. help oversee things, and you got Pete and you've got Bill? At Mont Lake, like that would be fascinating as well. Be fun to see, and uh, obviously they have great minds. I mean, but you got to know. I mean, there's egos involved here, and you know sometimes I saw it firsthand. Steve Mariucci was coaching the 49ers. They had Bill Walsh as a quote unquote consultant in the room, and you know Mariucci wouldn't listen to Walsh. I think it was part of the downfall of the Mariucci era. Didn't want him around. Didn't want him looking over his shoulder kind of relegated him to sharpening pencils and giving input on draft, and that's not what you want to do. You want to have a strong head coach who's got enough of a ego to not be threatened by the presence of Pete Carroll or Bill Belichick, but that takes a big, big personality to do that. All right, coming up, uh, we will uh, talk about local sports teams, Timbers, Blazers, Ducks, Beavers in particular, maybe the Winterhawks too, Who's winning? Who's losing? Who's getting? Who's doing it right? And who needs help? Sometimes it's easy to get out over your skis, talking about the Super Bowl, the World Series, the NBA Finals. We got some things going on right here in our state that we probably need to deal with. And uh, you know, I just want to kind of check in, and I'm going to do kind of a a positive and a negative on each. Okay, and. Some of them are harder to find. Like, it's harder to find a positive about the Blazers right now than it is a negative. And, you know, it's harder to find a negative sometimes about the Oregon Ducks or Oregon State and easier to see a positive. But I think it's good to check in once in a while and say, hey, how are they doing? And we used to talk and take calls over the years where we would say, hey, uh, on your bulletin board, if you had to rank the local sports teams, what's one, what's two, what's three, four, five, all, you know, go down the list. And there have been years where people have put the Blazers on top 
This is not one of those years. There have been years where the Ducks have been on top. Maybe it is one of those years. Uh, or Oregon State. Or the Timbers. Or the Thorns. Or the Winterhawks. But uh, I want to just check in with each thing. Because there's news here and there's news there as it pertains to these teams. And so I'll start with the Blazers. Because in some ways, um, you know, there are only major big four uh, sports franchise. And that matters. So let's talk about what's positive with the Blazers. Well, one of the positives is that we got some news today that the city of Portland and the Blazers have reached an agreement on a five-year extension of their lease. The lease was set to expire in October of 2025. The Blazers now will hold an option to extend the lease an additional five years through 2035. Um, This is called a, a bridge deal. Sources internally are saying it's a bridge deal, that the ultimate goal is that the Blazers want to see some action from the city of Portland on the development of the land around Moda Center and the Rose Quarter. And it struck us last night. Anna made the point. Like, I didn't say a peep. Promise me. You know, promise you. We were crossing the street after parking in one of those parking garages by Moda Center. We're walking over to the building. And Anna looks around and she says, you know, it's really sad that... The thought of even having dinner down here isn't doesn't cross your mind. So, you know, we head out after the radio show yesterday. We grab dinner uh, on the way to the venue. And Anna says, you know, why couldn't we just drive here like every other arena in America? And, you know, the restaurants should be following all over themselves to be vacating, or I mean, excuse me, occupying those spaces around Moda Center. And they're not because... You know, there's nothing going on there. They haven't developed an entertainment district. They haven't given people a reason to go down there often enough for businesses to be interested in it. So the Blazers, um, they need they need a development around Moda Center, and this lease is a step in that direction. Lease negotiated by the Blazers' president of business, Dwayne Hankins. I invited him on the show today. Uh, to my knowledge, I haven't checked back my messages, but I do not believe he responded to my text. Uh, we've had him on the show uh, a few months ago, but uh, love to get him back on to talk about what this this uh, this lease means. Um, the previous lease was a 30-year contract that went into effect when the arena opened, and so um, you know, Blazers talking about they they believe they need more time for a longer lease, but I actually think they're just kind of putting a little pressure on the city here by signing a shorter-term lease, five-year extension. Deal's going to go before the Portland City Council. Knock on wood. Cross your fingers. uh, Do whatever you need to do to hope that the City Council gets that correct. But it looks like uh, the Blazers have a five-year extension on their lease. Those of you who think they're leaving can breathe easy. They're not leaving. They're not going to Seattle. That the NBA owners are never going to go for that because they're counting on Seattle as an expansion team. So Blazers are getting that right. Uh, I also think they have a couple of good young players that you know people are excited to see develop. They're getting that right. Um, on the on the lost column, though, I mean we hit on it all week long. They are uh, not very watchable as a product, either in person or on television. Their TV deal with Root is terrible. Their direction as a franchise is is uh, spinning in circles. It's just a dead end. It's like Groundhog Day, whatever you, whatever you know, metaphor you want to draw. They're just not heading somewhere that um, you know feels feels like it uh, matters. And so, 
that's obviously not great. I want to pivot a little bit to the Portland Timbers. Starting a new season, interviewing a new head coach, introducing a new head coach, Phil Neville, uh, talking about opening up the season. Here, you're going to hear a clip from him at the news conference. Yeah, well, I think everyone keeps telling me that the Portland Timbers don't start the seasons well. Uh, so I think I think the two home games, for me personally, it, it, I get to experience Providence Park and, and the Timbers Army and the atmosphere and, and the intensity of our stadium. That that for me was special. And secondly, it gives us a it gives us a good, great chance to start the season well. Uh, there are no easy games in the MLS, whether you're home or away. Uh, we've we've watched Colorado, we've watched DC. They, they are both teams that have improved massively, and uh, they will be tough games. But but with our supporters and with our home home field, uh, hopefully that confidence and and that home field will take us to victories. Yeah, and this is Neville, who whose hiring was controversial. You remember the Timbers Army made a statement when he was hired urging the club to reconsider. He's got a history of making sexist public statements. Um, and, uh, the you know, he, by the way, he had some tweets about women that were in poor taste. And, of course, in the wake of the scandal involving the Thorns, the troubles with the Timbers, Merritt Paulson's involvement, Neville's hiring uh, was viewed as tone deaf, and I'm among those who think this was a tone deaf hire. So I'm going to put this one in the loss column, the fact that now this is the face of the franchise. He wants to be judged on what he does this season, wants to be judged on who he is now, but I think the overall overall picture that I'm getting from the Timbers is that they are out of touch, out of touch with fans, out of touch with um, you know their brand, out of touch with their actions and how those look to people. And I just think this is a really weird and controversial and bad move by the Timbers to trot Phil Neville out as their coach and manager, whatever you want to call him. But here he is. Um, on the bright side, the Thorns on the field in amid incredible distress and scrutiny and um, a ownership situation that was bad, uh, performed and have been every bit worth the price of admission. And so there's the uh, the yin and the yang of what's going on with the Timbers and the Thorns, and I think it remains that way until the Timbers prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you can trust them. And I just don't think you've been able to trust management. You haven't been able to trust their words. They're, you know, you're watching their actions, and you know, hire this guy, and you go, oh, my gosh, like, what are they doing? And so I'm skeptical right now of the Timbers – as an organization, and I think I think most people that have been tuned in are probably in the same position. And so um, I'm kind of waiting to see what happens with him, but I'm also rolling my eyes a little bit at the idea that he's even been introduced as the coach, especially after everything that's gone on. Uh, let's move on to Oregon State. In the win column, the Oregon State women's basketball program lights out. Big success. Um, great. That's been awesome. Uh, I think Oregon State winning – along with Washington State, uh, their settlement in December. They haven't finalized that yet. They need to get that finalized, but they're looking at $255 million in assets and control of the board for the Pac-2 conference. They've now changed commissioners to Teresa Gold. Um, That's all in the win column for Oregon State. I think baseball season's going to be great for Mitch Canham and his program. Put them in the win column uh, over there. But in the loss column for Oregon State, I'm a little bit concerned about football i'm and i'm this is mild okay so don't at me don't freak out don't say i'm a hater 
I'm a little concerned that I about the noise coming out of kind of the recruiting space in football. Trent Bray, I think, is the right hire. Keith Hayward is D coordinator, the right hire. Ryan Gunderson is offensive coordinator, the right hire. So I'm going to temper what I say by going, you know, I don't know if I would have done anything different. Maybe I would have considered Brent Brennan stronger, but I get what Scott Barnes did in promoting Trent Bray. I understand the logic of it. I get it. My concern is that it, you know, Trent Bray has come on this show twice, and maybe part of it is he's just getting used to being a head coach, but I haven't found that he is yet willing to kind of open up. And I'm worried that in recruiting, he's not going to be as engaging or as persuasive or as successful as Jonathan Smith was. And granted, Jonathan Smith wasn't like warm and fuzzy and, you know, he wasn't, you know, tell all and crying every time he came on the show. But I also felt like with recruits, he really resonated. And so I think it's going to be really important, in particular, that Keith Hayward, the defensive coordinator, take a strong role in recruiting defensive players because Hayward's got the personality. Hayward's got the connections. He's the recruiter in the room, and I think Trent Bray really needs him to be that guy. And there are different kinds of head coaches who do different things well across sports, right? You'll see guys who are more on the offensive side of the ball, more on the defensive side of the ball, more of a CEO, less of a CEO. What becomes important for young head coaches is to figure out what your strengths are Figure out what your weaknesses are, and then go hire staff members who can who can complement you best. And and I think you know Mike Bellotti did that well at Oregon. He went out and he got Nick Aliotti on the defensive side of the ball. Then he went in search of coordinators. He wanted to be the CEO. Bellotti wanted to be the CEO of the program. He didn't want to roll his sleeves up. He didn't want to be the play caller. He wanted to go out and find guys. And that's what he was cycling through play callers like Andy Ludwig and Gary Croton. And he found Chip Kelly and then said, this is the guy. And then it was kind of locked in there for a couple years. Like, you know, that's who Bellotti wanted to be. And I think there's real strength in that. But we've seen coaches who are maybe less secure. Ernie Kent comes to mind. Who didn't go out and find the best and the brightest to put on their staff. And I think that hurts you when you're a young head coach. And it it can be a killer. And so my hope here is that, and and the mild concern I have, is that Trent Bray isn't a great, charismatic, front-of-the-room point person. And if that's true, he can still win games. There are guys that are that way. Like, you know, Bill Belichick's not charismatic. He's not a front-of-the-room guy. Jonathan Smith, to some extent, was not a front-of-the-room guy, but he found he did enough of it. But I'm still waiting for Trent Bray to kind of break out of his shell. And I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen a lot of personality. I want to see more of it. And I'm a little underwhelmed in the recruiting space, but I'm giving them time. Let's see what happens at Oregon State. But I'm putting that in the negative column for now. Let's move to Oregon. In the positive column, certainly a lot going well with the football program. It's been all football all the time. And I had somebody who reached out to me today say, hey, the NFL set their salary cap. How much is Division Street spending? You know, like comparing it to the NFL's salary cap number. That's a good question. I'd be curious to see what Division Street is spending. But Dan Lanning's got it going. A lot of momentum. A lot of trajectory. Headed to the Big Ten. Whole bunch of excitement. Uh, Oregon's going to be a factor. And uh, whether the playoff has four automatic qualifiers or one in the Big Ten, Oregon is going to be a factor. You're going to be talking about them. But in the last column, 
Anybody else been underwhelmed by basketball at Oregon? I was just a little surprised that Dana Altman's season kind of is just okay. And, you know, they win a game against Stanford last night. Jackson Shellstad looked really good. One of those good games. But I'm curious to see what they'll do in the tournament, whether Dana can put it together. I'm uh, obviously looking at Kelly Graves on the women's side and hoping that, that he can fix this next season. But I just, I'm left wondering if the Division Street Collective is just not as active at all on the basketball side. They're not beholden to Title IX. They're under no requirement to fund basketball the way they're funding football. And so I'm just kind of, but I'm kind of wondering, like, is Division Street aware that Oregon has basketball? Just asking. Asking for a couple of friends. So I'm underwhelmed there on the basketball front. Um, Judah Newby, any thoughts to add to any of that? Timbers, Blazers. Ducks, Beavers. Fascinating stuff. I, I love hearing you get rip through on all the big brands that we got here. I think Trent Bray's an interesting one with the Beavers, and I'm going to give him time, obviously, because that program's always been substance over, you know, flash. Not to borrow a Dan Lanningism that everybody seems to borrow, but I think the substance hopefully can manifest in ways different than his front of room charisma. To your point. You know, that's the way that program's always been, and, and he's got to deliver. But let's be honest, John, and tell me if I'm wrong. Program's going to take a step back on the field. It's going to. I mean, they've been, they were so successful under Smith, building momentum and then peaking up until the last two weeks of the season last year. Like, it's going to take a step back. To me, it's a matter of degree. Like, what kind of steps back is it taking? Because obviously your conference is changing and your schedule is going to look a little bit different. Week three against Oregon, are we talking about a competitive game? If it's not a competitive game, and then you go, you have a good but not great conference season in the in the uh, Mountain West, I don't know. I, like, I don't know what the expectations should be for this program. Maybe we have to wait till we get a clearer picture on personnel. But there's a lot of questions. I, I've, I have faith that they can figure it out, but that the one of the four that you just listed, Beaver football is one that I've definitely got circled. Yeah, the Beaver football question, and I'm with you. I, I want to give Bray a little bit of time to figure out who he is as a coach. We always see. We watched it with Chip Kelly. We watched it with Jonathan Smith. We watched it with Dan Lanning. First-time coaches, first-time head coaches will always make adjustments. They'll always evolve. So I think the biggest area where Trent Bray can evolve is he's got to find a bigger personality in front of the room because he has to. He's going to have to generate season ticket sales. He's going to have to generate gift giving. He's going to have to inspire people to give to the NIL. He's going to have to recruit. All of those things are going to take personality. I know that he's a football guy. I know he knows football. I know he's diehard football. I get that from him when I interview him. But he's a little rigid, and I've just to this point have said, well, maybe it's just he's not – this isn't his comfort zone. Yeah. This isn't where he's best. But maybe those yeah. behind the scenes, you know, footage that, that the ducks do, maybe if the yes. beeves do some of that, that can reveal a part of his personality we don't know yet. We have to see that. They're gonna have to let us see that because that's gonna be necessary to sell tickets. And 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 I don't wanna criticize him, like he's still gotta be him. Yeah. He's gotta be who he is. Uh, they all have to be who they are. But we saw Mark Helfrich was that way. He, you know, was he was Mark Helfrich just a coordinator and not a head coach? Part of it was Helfrich's discomfort with being out front. And I think Bray's going to have to find more comfort being out front because I think people are starving to know more about him and more what what he's about. And, you know, uh, and I'll continue to interview him. I'll, I'll keep trying. But I think, you know, I've just heard a little 
whispers in the recruiting world that he's not as dynamic as Jonathan was. And But let's see. Let's give him a chance. All right. Leave it here. Let's continue this conversation after the break. Everybody talking about the pants in Major League Baseball. The problem with Major League Baseball's pants is that everyone's talking about it. Uh, it has uh, become center stage at spring training, the early parts of spring training. Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, they're cheap. They look cheap. The uniforms look cheap. The uh, Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred said they're the most tested uniforms ever. Um, but they didn't last like 15 minutes of scrutiny on social media. Like as soon as they were out, it was over. What's going on with the uniforms, Judah? Why is why is everyone talking about the uniforms and how bad of a misfire is this? Uh, you know, it's it's a pretty bad misfire, and and the fact that like no one's defending them besides the commissioner, I think tells you all that you uh, you need to know. But yeah, this is this is bad. Like I was even listening to a business podcast yeah. yesterday. They brought it up. And we're talking about it as a massive, you know, misfire. And I know there's, you know, Nike and Fanatics and who's to blame here. I, you know, I'll probably blame Fanatics a little bit on it. But, you know, it's supposed to be comfortable to wear and all that. I just miss the days of, like, really cool, well-stitched, you yes. know, baseball uniforms. You know, John, like, there's nice. something about baseball threads that are unlike anything else in sports. And I know they're, you know, may not be the most comfortable to wear for players at times, but... From a fan standpoint, man, I mean, there's something about that authentic baseball jersey. I got a Cardinals one at home, and uh, I'll put it on every once in a blue moon. But I won't be buying these Fanatics pants, that's for sure. It's unless uh, it's the, like Valentine's or something. You, you know, the uh, the Feds got Al Capone on tax evasion, and I think the baseball players are trying to get the uniforms on the pants. Like, I don't think they like them in general. I don't. You know, they're Nike generated, Fanatics produced uniforms. They're performance jerseys. That's what they're being billed at. Uh-huh. They were used at the All Star game. Players said that they have a lighter feel. They don't like the look. They look cheap to me, but the fabric's lighter and they look cheap. They don't look like that. They look amateurish. They look like little league jerseys. That's what they look like to me. They look yeah. like youth baseball jerseys and youth pants. Let's print it on. It's printed on logos. What are we doing? Oh, yeah. it's just so yeah. It's I'm looking at a picture of Otani right now, and you're right. It looks like he might as well be the manager of a t-ball team or something. Like there's print on, and some of these teams have random advertising on their you know sleeves now as well. It's just it's losing its luster that made it so great in a fast way. And uh, you know, Manfred needs to go. He's going to be gone by 29, but maybe this uh, moves up his retirement date faster. Uh, well, they they've sent. Uh, Nike and Fanatics have sent people, their people, to uh, to spring training, and they are doing adjustments. Mm. So they're doing adjustments on the waist, the seam, the thigh fit, the bottom of the pants. Players are complaining, and so they've made requests. So Nike, Major League Baseball, and Fanatics have been visiting training camps. They're conducting uniform fitting and feedback sessions. I think this will get fixed. I think that you're going to have to endure maybe a season of these because I have to think Nike and Fanatics are into this for a lot of uh, skin in the game. But uh, the fact that we're talking about the uniforms is a problem. Um, We're going to give away another four-pack of tickets to the Portland Golf Show. We'll take Caller 4 right now, March 1st through the 3rd at the Expo Center. We have a four-pack of tickets. Listeners who do not win over the air can also enter to win online at 750thegame.com slash contests. Uh, so call now, call her four at 503-417-7575. Gets a four-pack of tickets to the Portland Golf Show, March 1st through the 3rd 
at the Expo Center. Back to the uniforms real quick. I can remember one of the most joyful times in youth baseball was when the uniforms got handed out. When you got your hands on those uniforms and you got to pick your number or you got to wear the number you wore last year if you were a returner on the team, and that was always a joyful thing to take the uniform home, put it on that first time, put on the pants, put on the stirrups, put on the uh, you know the sanitary socks and the stirrups over them. And, you know, I don't even know if Little Leaguers are wearing that stuff now today, but I can just remember that exciting feeling. And so I – and then sometimes – you know, there was a player who maybe didn't get the number they wanted or maybe the fit wasn't quite right. And, of course, that became a thing. Um, you know, I, I'm i just left thinking right now with this Major League Baseball thing that it's kind of like, you know, Little League has handed out the jerseys and the players are all going, these are cheap compared to the jerseys we wore a year ago. These don't feel like big league jerseys because everything about the big leagues is, you know, if you've ever been to a Major League Baseball field or you've been close enough to the field or on the field, I've been lucky enough to you know, cover the, the Cardinals-Red Sox World Series in person, the Giants-Angels World Series in person, the Marlins World Series in person, be on the field at Wrigley Field or Fenway for batting practice. And what strikes you about any Major League ballpark is the details. The details are perfect. It's the blades of the grass. It's the painting of the lines. It's uh, the hue of the grass or the hue of the vines on Wrigley Field, the ivy. It's um, hearing the ball, a foul ball hit at Fenway, and it you know carries back and it hits the press box. And and when it caroms off, you realize the press box is made of wood. And you're you know there's just little details of the stadiums. The balls are perfect. You know the baseballs are all pearls and the bats, you know, there's it's just a, it's everything is pristine and and then this baseball game is played and then I was watching today um I happened to be watching the Dodgers Padres game uh on television it was kind of going on in the background and I know that Freddie Freeman was at the plate and I think he grounded into a double play when I happened to be watching but I wasn't watching any of the action I was looking at the uniforms I was I was I was stuck mesmerized watching the pitcher watching Freddie in the batter's box trying to go like you know are those pants are they cheap or breathable or is cheap breathable I can't decide but I just it's it'll be sad to me in much the same way that the you know we've had other sports who misfired on things it feels a little bit gimmicky it feels like the LED court for NBA All-Star Weekend, you know, that becomes a focal point and it shouldn't. The, the the talk should be about the great basketball or the three-point shooting contest. The uniforms should not be a focal point. You know, we shouldn't be talking about them. We shouldn't be talking about them or the umpiring. We should be talking about the great baseball teams and play, and this has dominated the first few days of spring training. Coming up, the 5 at 5. Anna's going to be here. She'll give us the five biggest stories that she sees going on. If you missed hour one, we had Kyle Smith, Washington State men's basketball coach. Grab the podcast. Also, later in the show, we'll take a look at the NBA at large. Trailblazers have signed a five-year extension of their lease with the city of Portland. Part of it feels like a development play to me. Doing a short-term deal with an option for five more years. Blazers saying they need more time. 
I think they're kind of putting some pressure on the city to boost the development around Moda Center. Anna and I were down there last night for Bill Burr, the comedian, who was really funny. Anna, you think he was funny? He was gut-bustingly funny. Okay. I was doubled over laughing. You were doubled over. You were that lady. I was. I'm. If you're at a comedy show, it's okay to laugh. <laughs> there were people all around us. People were behind us were fine. They were normal people at a comedy show. Guy next to me was fine. The people to the right of me, the whole row, no one laughing. Why? I, I don't know. Maybe they were offended. Maybe they forgot they paid to go to a comedy show. They made the choice to be there. I don't blame them. If they didn't think it was funny, they don't have to laugh. Maybe they're, you know, I got the feeling that Bill Burr was a little nervous about people in Portland retaliating. There was high security. Uh, yeah. There was high security at that event. Okay. More so than, like, even Dave Chappelle. I, I don't think so. I felt more security. <laughs> okay. There were four security guards right by the stage. Yeah. There was another one. I don't know. He was, like, four seats away from you. They had a security guard seated, right, in, with mm-hmm. his back to the stage. So there was that going on, too. Yeah. Um, but, the, but you made a comment as we were walking up to Moda Center. We were walking by Memorial Coliseum. And you said, you know, why didn't we have dinner down here? Like, why isn't? Why aren't there restaurants around here? I just, I don't get it. I don't get why there's a big, empty space between the Memorial Coliseum and the Moda Center that should be filled with, like, the scene outside of uh, Fenway Park. Like, there yeah. should be restaurants and bars there. It should be alive and, you know, commerce flowing People gathering and having a good time, like it doesn't make any sense. Anybody who's been to an event at the Moda Center, you know that you have to plan out some weird route where it's like, okay, where can we go to a dinner and then make it to the Moda Center in time? Because there's not really anything right around the Moda Center that's easily easily walkable, you know, from dinner. It's just it doesn't make. There's only two choices you make: you either eat on the way or at home. Or you go into the arena and you pay arena prices and you eat a slice of pizza or a hot dog or something. Yeah. Um, you know, there's also some, there were some hot dog carts that were outside. They were selling doggers out there for 10 bucks. Those were tasty on the way out. <laughs> and I got one. <laughs> you can't, you, you, you can't yeah. stick a fresh hot dog with sauteed vegetables Outside of a venue late yeah. at night. I'm not going to yeah. be making a good decision at 10 to 30 I, at night. I love how you were like, I'll take one. And then as the guy's preparing it, you're like, how much is that? <laughs> and yeah. he says 10 bucks. I go, I'm not surprised. $10. He's getting motor center prices. $10. And he can because there's no restaurants, no bars. There's nothing around there. I don't get it. What happened? Why? Why? Because Why there's is no there people there. a big there? empty space. And no entertainment district there. Because the only time anybody goes to Memorial Coliseum or Moda Center is for an event, okay? And there's not enough off-day traffic to support restaurants and bars. So what they haven't done is they haven't done a good job of developing it as a district that would have maybe some permanent housing, maybe a hotel, maybe restaurants, maybe shopping, or, and bring people to the area when you know when it's not the Blazers and the Hornets or the Blazers and the Nuggets. Bring people there on a more regular basis. And the you know Paul Allen owns a lot of the land, or his estate owns a lot of the land around Moda Center, all down to the river. 
and they just have never developed it. And the only time I ever saw them make, like, do a head fake to do development was when the AAA baseball team, the Portland Beavers, wanted to blow up Memorial Coliseum and build a AAA ballpark there. There was a meeting, and Larry Miller, then the president of the Blazers, showed up at this meeting, and he rolled out, here's our plans. Mm-hmm. Here, it was fake. It was a yeah. head fake. It was just like, we have plans for this area. I remember that. Don't develop the AAA ballpark. We have plans for this. We're going to develop this. Yeah. And they, and they never developed it. And you made a statement. I don't even know if you remember what you said. After you said, you know, they didn't develop this, and I said, well, Paul Allen owned all the land around it, you said... Do you remember? I said, I said, if this was Seattle, he would have done it. Yeah, you did. But it wasn't Seattle. It wasn't his home base. It wasn't important. He was just flying in for the games it, and it, flying out. It wasn't priority because he wasn't one of those people going, I have nowhere to eat, I have nowhere to shop, I have nowhere to stay. And I don't think he cared what people around Portland thought of him. And so, you know, look, sell the Blazers, Jody Allen. Get them sold. Get them in the hands of Phil Knight and Alan Smolinski. Why is that important? And why... And I can't. I keep hearing people go, you know, for people who view view Phil Knight as the savior of the Blazers, and I'm just going, you don't get it, do you? It's not. It's not even just Phil Knight. Alan Smolinski, the co-owner of the Dodgers, was part of the Phil Knight offering. Why is that important? Hmm. Think about who Alan Smolinski is. He is the biggest landlord in the L.A. area. He owns more property in the L.A. area, around the USC campus specifically. That's where he made his fortune. As a student at USC, he said there's no student housing. So he bought an apartment complex. Then he bought another one. Then he bought another one. And then he renovated them. And then he built more. And so all of a sudden, Alan Alan Smolinski's a developer. Mm -hmm. And so if the Phil Knight-Alan Smolinski pairing bought the Blazers, you'd get a land developer in Smolinski, mm-hmm. and you'd get the visionary Phil Knight and the Nike influence. And so I, I think it's so myopic of some of the Blazers media and some of the Blazers fans who go, Phil Knight's 86 years old. It's going to be 86 this month. You know why? He's not the savior of the franchise. And I'm like, can you not see like the vision of the like the forest in front of you, like Alan Smolinski is going to develop the land, and Phil Knight's going to be like his idea is legacy. It's all about legacy, and so Knight's influence is he just likes to keep the Blazers here and have them be something everyone can be proud of. It's not really about him owning them and saving them. It's about the vision for the area. People going shopping, going to see a ball game, going to a restaurant first, and not feeling like they have to park somewhere and watch their back. They're going to get shanked on the way to the game as they're walking. i got to be honest with you. When I was parking to go to Blazer games, last time I went to a Blazer game as a media member, I parked over in the old Portland Public Schools garage. i got to be, I, I was shocked when my car was there when I got back. I really was. Yeah, I mean, it would just be, it's such a missed opportunity. I mean, as somebody who grew up here, I would just, I, I, it boggles my mind that that area, for the number of people that do show up and go to games and concerts and events at the Moda Center at the Memorial Coliseum, it just, it, it's unfathomable to me that it has not been developed into something more than what it is. Which get, is nothing. Yeah, there's it, nothing there's there. nothing there. And so last night on the way to go to Bill Burr, Anna and I stopped off at little old Cafe Dewberry on McAdam Avenue with the best-kept secret in New Orleans slash Portland. Um, really 
cool little traditional restaurant, traditional French restaurant, a uh, little bistro. Guy brought out a violin, was playing as we were leaving, cello, violin. I don't know what it was. Um, he, he had a mandolin. I don't know. Uh, but it was awesome. And, yeah. you know, and that kind of, I, I guess we, we ended up better off at Cafe Dubarry than we ended up if we could dine at the Moda Center. But I want to give them a shout out. They were fantastic last night. Yeah. So in addition to Bill Burr. Let's do punch or punch it. Let's do the five at five. Here we go. The five at five. I'm such a creature of habit. The five biggest stories. <laughs> Anna's got it. Number one. Well, Steve Belichick's chatting. You know, he's joined the staff of uh, Jed Fish as the defensive coordinator uh, at Washington. And he's talking about his dad, Bill. How is he doing after being dismissed by New England. He says he thinks he's good. He says, let the stool roll off your back and move forward. He doesn't dwell unless we lost the game and he needs to get on some guys, but eventually you need to turn the page. Honestly, he says, I wasn't too involved in any of that. He did his thing. I did my thing. And that was kind of that. It's kind of a um, Frank Sinatra Jr., Bronny James, LeBron, Charlie Woods, Tiger Woods thing. Like that's a, you're, you know, Bill Belichick casts a big shadow. A lot of people didn't know he had a son, and now his son is here. He is coaching, uh, you know, joining Jed Fish's staff at the University of Washington. And Bill Belichick has been talked about going to TV. We talked about this earlier in the show, but you know, maybe he ends up on TV. Maybe he ends up as a defensive coordinator of the San Francisco 49ers. They're looking for a D coordinator. There's been some murmurs there. Don't know if there's anything to it, but keep an eye on it. Murmurs. Number two. Uh, all right. Let's talk about this guy that showed up on a video uh, looking like he had just been doing cocaine. The Arizona Coyotes hockey team have put their forward, Adam Rizika, on unconditional waivers to terminate his contract. This comes after he posted to his Instagram stories a video of himself with a suspicious-looking white powder appearing to be cocaine and a credit card on a counter. Like a counter, like a kitchen counter. The Coyotes announced today that he was going on waivers for termination purposes and said they would have no further comment at this time. He is 24 in the second season of a two-year contract worth $1.5 million. He's violating workplace policy here, potentially. Uh, he's also a guy who hasn't contributed much on the ice. No points in three games after he had nine points in 39 games in Calgary. Um, sounds like he's taking a page from Johnny Manziel. Did you see that interview? Johnny Manziel did with Shannon Sharp. Said he was on a strict diet of blow. Lost 40 pounds. 40-pound weight loss. Uh, in you know, telling Shannon Sharp that on the Shea Shea podcast. But um, sounds like uh, cocaine making a comeback. Is that the story? Is that the underlying story with I athletes? I think it's been back around for a while. I asked you that last night because I was like, did you see that Johnny Manziel thing? Like, who does coke? Is it really back? I don't know anyone that does coke. Well, thank thank goodness. That's why I hang around with you. <laughs> it, like, it's really expensive still, right? I and don't know what you're asking me. It's like we know it's really bad for you. I don't know. I don't know. I don't. Well, I don't Johnny care. Manziel. I actually thought when Johnny Manziel th- said that he lost forty pounds, I thought, oh great, you know, <laughs> people are gonna get ideas here. Um, he also lost his career. Okay, let's keep an eye on that. Number three. 
Oh, this one's a sad one. Three University of Wyoming swimmers were killed in a crash in Colorado. Um, they died when their SUV veered and rolled over along a rural highway. Um, gosh. That's that-, that same highway, 287. That's a dangerous highway. coming. It goes between the border of Wyoming and Colorado, between Laramie and Fort Collins. Yeah, and it's wild. So that's 15 of the, stu- the school students killed in recent years on that highway. Yeah. It's sad stuff. Um, for people who may remember, um, 2001, there was a head-on crash with a drunk driver on that highway that killed eight members of the cross-country team at Wyoming. Um, also, uh, after the September 11th terrorist attacks, a Wyoming student swerved um, in front of a, a bunch of... Uh, Athletes killing them, vehicular homicide. Um, pickup truck in 2010, drifted off the highway, rolled over, killed a football player and three teammates. My goodness. Yeah, that road has not been a good road to be on. So I guess the Wyoming students often take that road to shop and socialize and go to entertainment so in Fort Collins yeah. and in Denver. Something's got to be done with that highway. Yeah. Number four. Um, shall we talk about the salary cap with the NFL? Yes. Okay. Yes. It has skyrocketed now to $255 million for the 2024 season. But what I think is really interesting about this is the trajectory. So, like, in 2011 and 2012, it, it was at $120 million. And then it just started to go crazy. Like, round about... 2019, 2020, it started to jump by $10 million and then jump by like 20, 15 to $20 Went million, 30 million every this year. year. That's $30 million dollar jump. This jump, though, is in part due to the fact that the NFL had some deferred compensation that it owed the athletes from 2020 in the COVID year. So they're making it back up now. And the salary cap is tied to revenue. When revenue goes up, the cap goes up. Players just get to participate in the success of the league. It's good for teams like the 49ers, the Seahawks, the Green Bay Packers. Those teams were all going to be just over the cap. Now they're well under the cap like everybody. It'll be interesting to see what happens in free agency. There's going to be some big contracts. Some teams are going to overpay. And so if you're an unrestricted free agent right now, you are rubbing your hands together going, this is good. This is a good time for the cap to go up. (laughs) Number five. Let's close with Kevin Durant. Oh. Uh, Let's face it. He's used to criticism. But uh, what he heard before the game, before the loss to the Mavericks on Thursday, crossed the line for him. He's saying fans don't look at us as humans sometimes. So when you get a chance to let a person know how you feel real quick, then they'll backtrack. See, we're animals. We're circus acts. We're entertainers to them instead of real people. Before the game, a woman called him a B-word, uh, and this was on video. Right. I saw it. Kevin Durant got angry. He confronted the woman and the guy who was with her, who seemed surprised. Security, though, moved to eject them from the game, and then Durant intervened on the fans' behalf. Yeah, I saw the whole exchange. I, it, here's the thing. First, there's a few things going on here. Number one... I don't know how to politely say this, but the two fans who were yelling the B word, okay. yes. 
they look like they were a couple rungs below the Beverly Hillbillies. Okay? <laughs> as far as class, okay. intelligence, you know, okay. I, it, 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 if you told me that it was Barney Rubble and Betty, I would have said, okay, I believe it. In real life, come to life. Okay. Okay, that's the first thing. Okay. N- low class, okay? Uh-huh. Second thing, though. But you can be in a three-piece suit and be low class. Nah, they were low class. Uh, I heard them, I heard. Some of the cl- most classless people I've seen are in pinstripe suits. These people weren't in pinstripe suits. <laughs> so here's the thing. Um, Duran is running by with other players. Music's playing in the venue. Okay. That guy has rabbit ears. Okay. He hears criticism like nobody else. Uh-huh. He just whipped around yeah. when he heard that word. He is such a sensitive person. Yeah. Kevin Durant is sensitive. Yeah. He has big old ears, and he's listening for criticism at all times on social media and in the arena. And I'm not, I'm not saying what I already said they were low class for saying what they said. They're, you know, they're standing there. Frankly, I couldn't believe that they were standing at an NBA game holding a beer, and this is what they want to yell. Like, yeah. it was a low class thing to do. Okay. But Durant, he hears this. Yeah. He's tuned into the criticism in a way that normal people are not. So he's a little weird, I think, with how responsive he is to criticism on social media. And, and Damian Lillard's got a little of this, too. Russell Westbrook has some of this. Some of the NBA players, I think, are just really thin-skinned and listening for criticism at all times. But Durant might be the most. He's like all NBA in this category. So he hears this, and he comes back to have an exchange. And you can see, like, the assistant coaches and the coaches on his team are concerned about this exchange. Yeah. They come over. Uh-huh. And, and then the guy... The fan guy yeah. is telling Durant, uh, you know, I have a friend who has a podcast. You know, it's like not making no sense <laughs> okay. what he's saying to him. Durant finally just waves him off and he walks away. Uh-huh. But you're right in that security was then, were they moving to eject him or were they moving? I don't know if they were or weren't. I saw the report. I didn't really hear that in the exchange. But then Durant comes over, says, you know, they should be able to stay. But then he also tells the guy, you're a grown-up. Like, act like a grown-up. I want to say to Kevin Durant, too, like, it wasn't really grown-up behavior from him. Like, you're a professional athlete. You run by. Somebody calls you bitch or whatever they say to you. Most athletes would have just ran by and not said anything and let it go. And I do think him calling attention to it, I don't know if he feels like that's changed anything. I don't know if it's going to change anything. Why address it? Why even, you know, I've had worse things said to me walking through the parking lot of college football stadiums and at NBA arenas. But maybe he's just trying to make a point. Like, maybe he's trying to get people to be better. One at a time? Maybe. He did say that. He was like, be better. Well, because, I mean, now there's a story about it, and he gets quoted as saying, hey, I know you don't mean that, and I'm not going to get you kicked out because you paid your money for these tickets. You had a couple of drinks, and I understand how people get, but it's better. there's better ways to get my attention and talk to me. Yeah. Other than call me that out by my name because you're protected in these arenas. Like, I, I don't know. Is I, he? I, does he have this reputation of kind of being a whiner? I don't, yeah, I don't he know. does. But I think everybody. I think everybody's wrong to an extent. Mm-hmm. I think the fans are wrong for saying it. I think yeah. Durant's wrong for even responding to it. I think he should just ran by. But I also do see the virtue in what he's trying to do a little bit, a little bit. I just don't understand why people. 
Why would they behave that way? I don't know why some fans feel like their big night out at the arena is to yell at players yeah. and try to berate players. Like, I, 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 think I don't get line, it. That's the problem. That's that's that is one of the problems. Like it's the disintegration of civilization. But, but Duran like, is hanging out on Twitter with fake candles. You well, know, yeah, he definitely shouldn't entering the discussion, defending himself and yeah, whatnot. No. You know, no. it's. He's thin-skinned. He shouldn't be answering to the trolls. That just brings more trolls. All right, we're going to talk to Jason Anderson of the Sacramento Bee coming up. He covers the Sacramento Kings. We're going to check in one small market to another. How are we doing? I talked a little bit yesterday about the sad story, the pathetic story, Matt Barnes, parent out of control at a youth basketball game, high school basketball game caused a, a stir and is now out as the pre and post game host on the Sacramento Kings broadcast uh, locally there in Sacramento. It's not the only reason I want to have our next guest on. I've known him for a long time, Jason Anderson. He covers the Kings. Uh, he's been at the Sacramento Bee forever, does a fantastic job there for a great paper. Uh, Jason Anderson joining us from Sacramento. Uh, hey, man, how you doing? I'm good, John. Thanks for, for having me on. And, um, you know, I'm not coming on your show without telling you and, and your listeners how uh, how grateful I am to you for, for your friendship and, and the way you mentored me as a, as a young, dumb college kid 20-plus uh, years ago. You you uh, took time out of – you were well on your way to, to being one of the best sports writers in the world already and, and took uh, quite a bit of time to, to kind of help me along, and uh, I will be forever grateful for that. Well, you have uh, you have done it and have covered the Kings, and you've come a long way. And I got to know, uh, I appreciate what you said too, but I also saw a lot of talent in you. And I think for listeners out there, you know, you either you either be a mentor, you find a mentor. I had him, you had him. Um, Jason's one of those kids that I just saw a ton of talent in, and just took some time to talk with him about you know what he wanted to do with the craft in his career, and uh, he has soared now at the Sacramento Bee, calling the shots there. Um, give me an idea. Let, can we start with the Matt Barnes story, how wild and weird that is? And for people who don't know, Barnes kind of went nutty at a high school basketball event and was berating the officials, put his hand on the broad, the uh, public address announcer broadcaster's shoulder and kind of lectured him. Um, what happened there? Yeah, well, we should point out that the, the, this is a, a student play-by-play announcer, uh, 17 years old, I believe. Um, and, and he's, he's sitting there calling the game and, uh, Matt had, uh, Matt got upset with the officials, um, had some, some choice words for them. He was kind of up on um, pacing the sideline and directing some words out onto the floor. And, um, somehow this kid caught his eye and, and, you know, according to, according to his account, um, Matt said, you know, what are you looking at? And that led to the exchange where Matt leaned in and, and, you know, this is all on video where Matt put his hand on, on the the young man's shoulder and leaned in and had some words. And according to, uh, according to the student, uh, he he said, don't touch me. And Matt said, I will slap the the blank out of you. And, you know, that kind of became a, a, a viral moment on social media. It was out there. The LA times reported on it. The New York post reported on it. Uh, we, uh, we reported on it and, um, you know, and then here we are a couple of weeks later and, and NBC sports, California, uh, has parted ways with Matt. Yeah. He, he, he was, I should, yeah. yeah, he was, he was, uh, in his third year working as a, 
as like a pregame and postgame studio analyst uh, for for Kings games. He grew up here in Sacramento. Um, has always been a little bit of a polarizing figure due to you know some of his his run-ins um, uh, with the law and, and other personal things over the years. Um, but but you know was you know I'll say talented guy. I mean talented analyst. Um, worked his butt off as a player to, to carve out a 14-year NBA career after coming out as like a, a 46 pick, I think, in the draft. And, um, you know, lots of talent there um, on and off the floor, uh, but but has just had, you know, just, just some of these run-ins that have derailed him a little bit over the years. Yeah, and I think, you know, I've heard people say your strengths can be your weaknesses. And in one hand, Matt Barnes is a fighter. On the other hand, he's a fighter. And so it's <laughs> like, you know, that thing – that thing not necessarily good when you're trying to be a youth sports parent and you should probably be sitting there cheering for your kid instead of yelling at the officials. Um, let's check in on the Kings, Jason. Like, you know, you have your your uh, finger on the pulse there. They're, they're in the eighth spot in the Western Conference. You know, Portland uh, nowhere near the, the playoff picture this season and one small market to another. Give us an idea, kind of the state of the union with the Kings franchise. Well, you know, it took a it took a long time to get here. They, uh, you know, they had 16 consecutive losing seasons, the longest playoff drought in NBA history, and then um, all of a sudden they they made a couple of good hires in a row, and and you know a good draft pick here and there, and that sort of changed their fortunes. And and uh, Monty McNair is the general manager. Uh, Wes Wilcox is the assistant GM. They came in. They made, uh, you know, they made a, a couple of good picks. Uh, they drafted Tyrese Halliburton. They ended up flipping him for for Demonis Sabonis. Uh, they drafted Keegan Murray. De'Aaron Fox was already here. They extended him. Well, that was one of their first uh, priorities when when they took over. Uh, and then they hired Mike Brown, who has, um, you know, a, a great track record over the years. Uh, most recently, three with the Warriors as, as Steve Kerr's lead assistant. Um, and and you know, they brought Mike in. And almost overnight, the culture changed. And, and, you know, I've talked to people around the NBA who um, said that great Warriors culture, uh, Mike had just as much to do with it as, as anybody in that organization. And, and we've really seen that here in Sacramento where he's just created a, an environment where everybody wants to grow and get better and, and be together and, uh, and work towards, you know, a common goal. Uh, they, they made the playoffs last year. Uh, kind of soared really out of nowhere to the three seed in the West. Um, this year it's been a little different, you know, with the rise of Minnesota and Oklahoma City and uh, better health with the Clippers and um, the Pelicans. And, and, you know, some of these teams have, have you know, jumped up into that top six and, and the Kings have been pushed down a little bit, but they're tracking really on the same pace as they were a year ago. Um, and, and, you know, there's some things they're still trying to work out. Mike is, is demanding better defense here. He knows that for them to have any real postseason success, they're going to have to be a top 10 or 15 defensive team. Last year they were more like 24, 25. And so he's been willing to sacrifice some things offensively to um, implement um, some things on defense that he feels like they, they're going to have to be able to do eventually. And so there have been a few growing pains with that and, some of the shooters I've written recently about, um, you know, how they, some of their shooters really struggled early in the year to really go on the defensive end, get over screens, fight through, you know, this stuff and, and exert more energy on that end. And, and their legs just weren't always there uh, to offense. But um, even some of those guys seem to be coming around now. Kevin Herter is a good example where 
uh, he's he's back to where um, maybe the last 20 games or so he's, he's shooting the three a lot better than than he was early in the year. Um, so we're starting to see some of Mike's vision uh, come to fruition here, and, and we'll see what they can do over the last like 27 games to to you know solidify another playoff spot. Jason Anderson, Sacramento Bee, is with us. Covers the Kings. Five of the eight teams in the, the top eight teams in the West. I would say Minnesota, Oklahoma City, Denver, Sacramento, New Orleans. Five of the top eight aren't your traditional like large market teams. And I, I'm used to seeing the big teams like the Lakers, the Warriors, you know, uh, others uh, dominate. And what do you think's happening there? Is this something that the league did, or is this just, hey, it's cyclical and, you know, some of these small market teams are, are rising up? Well, that's interesting. Um I think what we're seeing, what we're already seeing is that, that some of these teams you're referring to are, are just aging. They've got aging talent, future Hall of Famers, but, um, you know, they're getting along in the tooth. And you can, you can point to L.A., you can point to the Warriors, um, you know, as, as prime examples of that. Um, what, I, what may be a factor now and certainly will become more of a factor going forward is uh, new provisions in the collective bargaining agreement with the, the first tax apron and the second tax apron, where these teams are going to start losing some of the, the financial tools that they're at their disposal um, if they're over the the, the luxury tax limit. Um, and, and you know, the, the higher, the further over that limit you are, the more hamstrung you're going to be in terms of team building. Um, for instance, losing things like the mid-level exception. Uh, which, you know, can give you, I think, now $11, $12 million to spend. Um, you know, teams that are that are just way, way over the cap are just not going to have that at their disposal. So not only are we seeing already a shift with some of that, but I think, you know, that could even be compounded a little bit going forward for a couple of these teams if, if they can't find a way to get spending under control. And the Kings are one of the teams that are, are maybe in a good position to take advantage of that because they're, they're earlier on in their team building and spending um, where, you know, the Kings in particular already have some money out on the table with Fox and Sabonis. Uh, Murray is, is going to become eligible for an extension before long. But they, they can do those things going forward at least with that thought in mind that, that you know, they need to be careful of, of how they do things. So, you know, certain teams, and, and you know, maybe Portland can be one of them, going forward because they've got a couple of nice guys on, on rookie scale deals um, and some other contracts that, that, you know, they could move and, and get off of, um, you know, if you can take advantage and then have the foresight to, to build your team the right way under the way this, the CBA is structured now that could set you up to, to maybe be able to leapfrog some of these, these traditional big spenders. I heard a blazer fan who's a friend of mine the other day say, Hey, if Portland had a guy like DeMontis Sabonis, I could I'd go to games even if they weren't good. How has he captured the fan base? Has he is he a big selling point there? He is. He's a monster and and he's really underappreciated around the league. I um he is at this point now I think in my top 5 in MVP voting, uh probably right around 5, but um he is uh he's he's got a streak of 38 consecutive double-doubles. He leads the league in double-doubles and triple-doubles. Uh, second is, is Nicole Jokic, who's a two-time MVP. Um, DeMont, he, he just brings it every single night. And, and that's a key part of it is that he plays every single night. He was doubtful last night, uh, due to illness. 
And, you know, sure enough, he's out on the floor. Last season, he broke his thumb in December, suffered a, an avulsion fracture in, in his thumb. He missed one game and taped that thing up and, and got back out there, even though they were still talking about, you know, whether he would need surgery or not. And, and he didn't miss another game, uh, I, I don't think, the rest of the season. So he's, he's available. He's, <clears throat> he's strong. He's stronger than people give him credit for. And, and he really eats against, you know, lighter body guys in particular, uh, you know, Victor. Uh, Wimbanyama was here last night, and and you know Demonis had his kind of had his way with him a little bit, um, and and we've seen him do that against other guys like Chet Holmgren and and you know some of the other other up and coming young bigs in the league. So he he really has uh, built something special here. He wants to be here long term, and and you know the Kings are, are certainly happy to have him. Jason Anderson, Sacramento Bee, with us. You see the league. You're there. You're on it now. Give me your way too early. Who's in the NBA Finals? Gun to your head. You have to pick it now. Mm. Tough one. Um, tough. In the West, it's uh, especially tough. But I would, um, you know, I'm going to, um, I think I'm going to go with Denver. If you're really going to put a gun mm-hmm. to my head and make me say they've been there before. Mike Malone's a great coach. Jokic is, uh, is just a phenomenal, phenomenal player. Um, I would uh, I, I would probably point to the Nuggets, even though they're fourth right now. Um, and then in the East, I think uh, I think Boston is clearly the favorite, um, with you know Cleveland and, and Milwaukee right behind them. Philly will still have a chance if if they can get Embiid healthy and, and um, you know kind of get back up to speed in time uh, for the postseason run. But uh, uh, give me Boston and Denver at this point. All right, last question: All Star Game. I thought the three three point contest with Steph Curry and Sabrina was a highlight. I w- I I was so turned off by the game. What's the league going to do with this game, Jason? You know, I don't know. It's tough. It it um, you know, the one idea I've heard people talk about is going to a world format, US versus the world, and I I, I don't know if that would help or not. Um, I, I, you know, I liked the shift this year back to the East and West game, like traditionally that I was always a always a fan of that growing up and and i think that's that's where it should be um but you know it really comes down to the players and and how much they care and you know for a lot of them you know you get to this point in the season and and their bodies are beat up man they're they're you know it's a it's a long grind 82 games uh the the all-star break does not come at the midway point it comes more like 55 to you know 57 games into the season um and and there are a lot of guys nursing a lot of things at that point so um, you know, they don't necessarily want to go out and and and, and exert themselves in, in the way that, that maybe you would hope. Um, you know, it's a, it's a tough weekend for some of them with all the demands on their time and, and stuff. So, it, you know, I don't know. I don't know if you can incentivize them in, in you know, some other way. Um, but it, it really eventually is going to come down to just the players, how much they care, what the game means to them. And, and I don't know if the NBA can find a way to, to – you know, to, to make that mean more than it does right now or not. Appreciate you, man. I'm really proud of you. Good to see you doing your thing, Jason. Great to hear your voice. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, sir. Anytime, let me know and, and be well. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of you, too, and everything you're doing up there. Great show. Jason Anderson from the Sacramento Bee covering. I think, I think it's good to check in, like, small market to small market. What's going on there? What could be if Portland got its act together with ownership and – Drafted the right players, and 
I am a big believer that if you have good ownership and good leadership, the other things are all easier. Uh, I don't know about you. Some parting thoughts for the weekend coming up. You got the BFT statewide on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. Good show today. Thanks to Kyle Smith, the Washington State men's basketball coach, who was on in hour one. Cougars caught lightning in a bottle. They've won eight straight. I can't help but think Oregon State women. Washington State men, are they playing with a little something extra when it comes to uh, the Pac-12? And will we see that manifest itself in Vegas during the conference tournaments? We'll be there broadcasting live. For the women's tournament, we will be there March uh, 7th and 8th with live broadcasts Thursday and Friday from Vegas. Men's tournament, we will uh, be on the scene on March 14th and 15th to cover the uh, tournament on the Thursday, Friday as it heats up we'll get players we'll get coaches we will be on the scene for the final pac-12 as we know it tournament next season oregon state washington state will be competing in the wcc tournament in las vegas so they'll still go to vegas but there might be something extra i have to think there is something extra as it pertains to those two schools and you know what what they're doing this season it's been remarkable you know on the women's side to see oregon state Ninth in the country, playing lights out. When they're at full strength, who's beating them? Um, and then on the men's side, Washington State has swept Arizona. Beat them home and away. One eight in a row. Kyle Smith came on the show, um, you know, asked him uh, about the victory at Arizona last night. Uh, talked to him today about it. You know, I actually felt, I felt like we were going to compete pretty well now. Getting a win there is a whole other story, but um, and I don't know why, but uh, this group's been pretty good, probably because we've won seven in a row. <laughs> but uh, you know, I thought we could we could uh, take care of the ball would give us a chance, and I think both games we only turned it over nine times, so and and same same result, just got a, gave us a chance end of the game, and and you got to get lucky too. They had a chance at the end of the game. It was remarkable. They're down three. They need a three. Jalen Wells, their best shooter, best player, best scorer. Uh, they're trying to get him open. They can't. And so, uh, you know, it, he doesn't get the shot, first shot in the possession. But Washington State gets an offensive rebound, kicks the ball out to a wide-open Jalen Wells, who not only hits the shot, but uh, an Arizona defender who is – Running at him as he shoots, ends up fouling him. Four-point play. Here's how it sounded. Off the screen, top of the key for the tie. Bracket, front iron, no good. Rebound, Yaki in the lane. Dishes it left wing for the tie. Wells, he hits it. And he got fouled. And he got fouled. <laughs> Four-point play in Tucson. Jalen Wells, 24.6 left. Can you believe it? With a smile on his face, Jalen Wells, a four-point try, and a free throw coming for the lead. Whoa. There it is. Success. As Jalen Wells hits it, he hits the and one for the four-point play, and then um, subsequently a shot uh, taken uh, by uh, Arizona. It hits the front of the iron, and, uh, of course, Washington State walks off with a win. Kyle Smith, very happy about that. Asked him about his success. You know, if you're Washington State and you're 
watching guys jump in the portal, go to the NBA last season, you're seeing it disintegrate. Somehow Kyle Smith took what was left, added players in, kept culture, and ended up better because of it. I asked him, how did he pull it off? Here's what he said. Our character. I mean, like I said, it's I got double down on my why, why I do this. And, and we pitch it to parents. We pitch it to the kids. It's corny. But we say, hey, this is a character development program. We display our character through basketball. So we start from there, and then we try to work through it. And um, so we try to keep the main thing the main thing. And um, that's what makes me proud of the guys I've coached in the past to see how well they do in life. Um, so I think, you know, what I say, if you want guys that want to be here. And, and I still have good relationships with some of the guys that left. And then we didn't leave on bad terms. But it's like, hey, you don't want to be here. Fine, we'll be okay, and, uh, and we have been. So it just kind of got better, and I, I think the only two pieces that have been here for five years are, are me and Shaw. So the shamble. They got the two coaches that have been there all five years. Kyle Smith having success. I couldn't help but think of the parallels between what Scott Ruick said uh, last week on the show and what Kyle Smith said this week on the show. Uh, here's uh, here's Scott Ruick talking about his team and his culture. Just think about this. Um, this is a team that Scott Ruick had that was 13-18 and 18 last year. Then he shows up at Media Day, and what is he talking about? You know, I'm really excited. We, we had so much momentum built, um, you know, I think eight years in the tournament, um, you know, and then COVID happened. Uh, and we took a step back, no question. And and now this group is reestablishing the culture that we had and their competitors like we've had and their expectations are what we've done. And and so because of that, I'm extremely optimistic. I love them. I think we have all the pieces that make a great team. And, you know, we need to grow together. And the media subsequently picked Washington State to finish last and Oregon State to finish 10th in the women's bracket, or in the women's standings. Those two teams are now, uh, you know, in Washington State's case, they're in first place, and in Oregon State's play- case, they're in second place. Uh, Talia von Olhoffen came on this show on uh, Tuesday? Wednesday? Wednesday. And I asked her why she was so emotional after beating UCLA last Friday a week ago. Well, she said it was... Scott Ruick and the belief that he had in her. Listen to this. Um, I think just our relationship over the years, um, I've, I've had some ups and downs and, and with the program just figuring so much out and having a rough freshman year, turning around, kind of rebuilding, only only winning four games, um, and then going through my injury last year and not really being able to perform the way I want to um, physically. It's just been a ride, um, and I think just – maintaining that relationship and problem solving with him and and i feel like this year we've gotten a lot closer and like you said i feel i feel like i'm working with him and and we're a good team and so i don't know i'm just i'm very grateful for him and so much of our success as a team this year is is credit to him and and what he's built and um the culture of this team is is just something that he emphasizes so much yeah and look i'm i'm comparing these two teams and i've been doing it all show because i believe there are parallels between what we're watching at Oregon State on the women's side, and what we're seeing from Washington State on the men's side. Now, Oregon State is on the road tonight as they are playing at Washington State, and they will play there. And then Washington State's men's program uh, will play tomorrow 
in Tempe against Bobby Hurley in Arizona State, who, by the way, came back from 25 down to win uh, yesterday in their game. So I think it's just going to be a fun, a fun finish. You know, Oregon State has, uh, you know, sitting here two games back of Stanford in the standings. Uh, we're two weeks away from the tournament, and guess what? They play each other. You know, they've got a game against each other coming up. I, I just think it's going to be a lot of fun to see what happens here in the last two weeks of the season. But Oregon State's got to take care of business tonight at Washington State and then at Washington on Sunday. And then Thursday they host Stanford. And then next Saturday they, they host Cal. So chance for the Beavers to finish strong. Have a great weekend, everybody.